My name is Paul van Westendorp, and I am the provincial apiarist of British Columbia. That means that I look after the program on apiculture on bees for the for the for the Ministry of Agriculture, and uh, we try to deliver our services throughout British Columbia wherever honeybees are kept. Right. So one thing that's on a lot of people's minds or that makes the news a lot is this idea of the Japanese hornet or um, the killer bees uh, that's been making the news over the years. And you're, you're the person they call in. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background on how this got started? Okay. Well, uh, the, 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 the hornet is actually the Asian giant hornet. Uh, that is Vespa mandarinia. Um, that one was first discovered in 2019 on, on Vancouver Island. And that is an invasive pest, an invasive species uh, that we have uh, tried to control uh, together with our friends down south in Washington State. So that's a, a totally separate you know, enterprise, if you will, uh, compared to the main activity that we are involved with in the apiculture program dealing with honeybees. Right. And honeybees, you should consider those as livestock. They are not just lovely little sweet bees. Yeah, they are. But um, we use them and, and manage them for a number of reasons, not only to produce honey, of course, and, and things like this, but most importantly, to uh, to bring about uh, the pollination of flowering crops right. from which we get fruits and seeds and things of that kind. So, um, and that is the main focus of our apiculture program. Yeah. And so people are terrified of the idea of this killer bee that's oh, going to come after bee, people. Sorry. And so can you tell us about um, when they were first discovered? Um, were you concerned? It sounds like no. in the beginning, you you were a little bit skeptical of whether or not they had arrived here. Could you give us the background? Well, the we have to step back. The the the, the honeybees are uh, belong to the genus Apis. That is why we call beekeeping Apis or apiculture, apiculture. Yeah. Uh, the genus Apis has never been represented in America, so neither in North America, Central or South America, uh, the, uh, uh, representatives of the species or the genus Apis didn't exist. So it came about because of the the uh, um, you know introduction of honeybees from Europe during the settlers 400 years ago. And so the honeybee, the European honeybee, has become totally and uh, you know endemic now and and found in many other places. Uh, you, uh, Settlers also brought those European bees and considered those, of course, within an, 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 an temperate climatic regime. They brought them also to South America, to the tropics. And uh, in the tropics, they didn't perform very well. So as a result, some researcher in uh, Sao Paulo uh, brought some, uh, some genuine African bees um, to uh, to South America to breed. Um, these Africanized bees are a subspecies, are not a species difference, but a subspecies or a racial difference, if you will. And, and that is important to recognize that you have uh, different races of bees can easily hybridize. They can mate with each other successfully. If you have a different species, the genetic differences is too large for it to 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 reproduce successfully. 
In some cases, that is possible, but uh, mostly you have offspring that is not very viable. A good example are a donkey and a, and a, and a, and a horse. Yes, you can get successful uh, crosses in that, but they are mostly sterile. There is too much genetic problems is there, if you will. So these African bees were brought to South America and they were, uh, that is a different subspecies of bee, of European bees. So it's a different uh, subspecies and, and they bred or they, they, they escaped and they started to run or, or hybridized with the European honeybees that were already there. And those Africanized bees they were not African bees anymore. They were Africanized bees, right? Uh, started to spread very rapidly throughout the Amazon basin and from there into Central America, from Central America in, uh, in Mexico and from there into the United States. And they arrived in the United States in 1990. Um, and uh, these are because of their highly defensive behavior. Uh, that's why they were dubbed not by beekeepers typically, but by the media, um, as killer bees. And the reason is that they tend to be, when the nest is disturbed, uh, that instead of just a few bees uh, being unhappy, uh, a whole pile of them will come out and start to do some serious um, damage to whoever is disturbing their nest. So they were, and in particularly in South in Central America, a lot of livestock uh, are often uh, um, uh, teethered. They, they cannot have roam freely and they cannot escape when the bees attack. So that is why you had quite a bit of uh, uh, livestock and human fatalities over the years. Um, so uh, the reason that I'm not that concerned about Africanized bees is here in Canada is because um, uh, the uh, African bees that were brought to South America in the 1950s by this researcher at Sao Paulo University. Um, these bees also, when they escaped, they also migrated southward in South America towards the more temperate climatic zones. And it is interesting, uh, the scientific community tends to ignore that, but or doesn't pay enough attention to it. But if you look at the map, that when you travel southward from Sao Paulo, uh, everything in that area southward is Africanized up to roughly the 35th parallel, southern parallel, of course. If you go further, and in around the 35th parallel, you have typically a hybridization zone. You have both European bees and Africanized bees kind of both represented. When you go further down into the Tampa, uh, into the Pampas of Argentina, uh, where a lot of bees are kept, um, all of those are European. Uh, I spent some years in East Africa, and um, um, uh, on the hot savannas of East Africa, you have typically there Apis mellifera scutellata, the African bee that was brought to South America, and they are very uh, challenging to to manage to deal with. There are certain techniques that really lowers their their hot temper. But uh, aside from that, when you go into the higher elevations of the Rowanzores, the Rowanzores are the mountains of the moon uh, in western uh, Uganda, close to the border with the Congo. Um, I saw bees out there uh, that were 
behaving the same as our bees out here in in Canada and that is and, and there is no physical barrier i mean the ones from the hot savannas in in Af- africa can literally fly up the hill in order to get to these higher elevations in the ruwenzori's but the ones in the higher elevations are distinctly different because they have acclimatized to a very different climatic regime that does not tolerate that highly uh, defensive behavior and uh, in fact, uh, a researcher, I don't want to go into too many details, but a researcher in the 1970s traveled through there and identified this, uh, this particular group of bees in the higher elevations as being uh, a different subspecies again. Uh, and that was called not Apis mellifera scutellata, but Apis mellifera monticola. Okay. Uh, so uh, it appears that clearly there are some very significant climatic uh, uh, limitations that enable these Africanized bees to function well in our temperate zones. And you can also say we put a qualitative judgment on bad behavior, this highly defensive behavior. But let's turn it around and look at it in a different way. Uh, this, this highly defensive behavior can also be seen as an, an expansion of an enormous amount of energy because it sacrifices a lot of food reserves for these bees to get so agitated and to be, be defensive in, in a behavior that is often not very cost effective. Right. When honeybees start to expand much of their reserves their energy on this highly defensive behavior they reduce uh, the chances of wintering successfully and i think it is therefore uh, it can be viewed that this highly defensive behavior is unaffordable in an environment where you have strong seasonal food availability and long periods of non-food availability, which means the winter season. Right. Okay. So Africanized bees or African bees enjoy the luxury of having little dribblets of nectar sources and pollen sources through much of the year. It may never be a large amount, but steady over the months and over the entire year. But the bees in the temperate zones cannot afford that. They have to work very hard throughout the spring and summer season in order to build up enough reserves that that gives them enough food reserves for the entire winter season. Now, we as beekeepers take that honey away and we give them sugar syrup instead, which is totally fine from a survival perspective. Uh, but uh, coming back on these killer bees or these Africanized bees, uh, I believe that when they are brought up here in our temperate zones, uh, that uh, the much of their behavior must be tempered simply because they cannot afford to survive very well in the wintertime. Right. So... What if, like, I watched a documentary on these and they seem to go after honeybees. And so is there any, cons- uh, maybe the Japanese? Oh, um, you're talking about two different things. Okay. So, so the honeybee, the, the, what you called killer bees or these properly called Africanized bees are honeybees. Okay. When you were talking about the Japanese hornet or the Asian giant hornet, it is a totally different beast. Okay. Uh, completely different. Uh, I, and I can show you a sample of what that looks like. Um, they are about uh, three or four times larger. Uh, they are like a hornet. And the easiest thing to separate these things out is this, that if you deal with wasps and hornets, 
they all come from the same uh, ancestor. They are all within that group of hemenopterans, so-called, um, that consist of the wasps and the hornets and all those, including the ants, by the way, who in the process through evolution lost their, lost their wings, of course, but they are in that same order called the hemenopterans. And the, uh, the ancestors to the bees are wasp-like or hornet-like ancestors. And over millions of years, um, in fact, roughly uh, 95 to 100 million years ago, that is when the beginning of a separation took place. Hornets and wasps are by definition insect hunters, hunters of other insects. And for that... You don't need hairiness. You need a an, an stealth, hard-coated body to f- f- fly fast and to have good eyes to, to, to find your prey and have good mandibles to, to bite and to chew and, and things of this kind. The reason that there was this separation is because the, the world started to develop flowering plants for the first time. Prior to that, the world was a pretty dull place. Much of the vegetation was kind of wind-pollinated or through spore reproduction, vegetative growth, rather than sexual reproduction. It was about 95 million years ago, or 100 million years ago, give or take, that the flowering plants started to develop. And that was actually revolutionary in the living world because what happened was that these plants started to develop very specific gender or or sexual uh, 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 organs, female organs and male organs. So you have there the need for having uh, uh, pollens, male seeds, if you will, to transfer over to female flower parts to uh, to create uh, uh, cross breeding okay uh, that allowed for a much uh, the development of a much greater biodiversity of both plants and all kinds of animals that depend on these plants the bees that became the precursors to our current bees started to modify their physical uh, functions and and body sizes and and shapes and everything else and their behavior as well to take advantage of the food sources food rewards if you will that these flowering plants started to offer and that is why uh, uh, that that over mil- millions of years uh, we had to the development of what we collectively call the bees or the pollinators and honeybees are is only one species of some 20,000 or so different species of what we call bees throughout the world. So honeybees is only one one specific species. Generally, but it's not totally true, but let's say the majority of what we call bees can be identified as being hairy. They have a lot of pubescence, hairiness. And that is a great advantage because when bees uh, land on a flower, uh, they grasp that flower or crawl into the flower, and the hairs are like little brooms that will pick up pollen grains. And when they say enough and they go to the next flower, they will have a whole bunch of these pollen grains on their body, on their hair parts, and they de- deposit these pollen grains onto the next flower. And that is where you have pollination taking place. 
So it's it's both an, an extraordinary and beautiful process of the interaction of and dependency of bees, pollinators, and the flowering world. If you take all the bees away, we are going to starve to death because you have an ecological collapse because we no longer have any food. Well, we could have food in the form of grains. Grains belong all to the grass family. And those are all wind pollinated. So if you look at wind pollination, um, uh, the, the evergreen trees are also wind pollinated. You don't need an insect for the transfer of pollen grains from one part of the, from a male flower part to a female flower part. Um, mostly the wind pollinated plants uh, tend to uh, uh, dominate in environments where there is a relatively low biodiversity. In other words, there are only a few, relatively speaking, a few species of plants that dominate the landscape. And the prairies is the best example of that. So when the grasses start to become sexually active, reproductive, they release pollen grains. And these pollen grains are swept up by the wind and they just blow in great distances. And hopefully some of those will fall onto female flower parts. But most of it is wasted because if you park your car somewhere, you will see that after you come back, uh, after a shopping spree, you see that your windshield is covered in yellow powder, okay? or it lands onto the road surface or into a lake or wherever. It means that a great deal of the pollen grains that grasses and evergreens release, since they are wasted, most of it, that plant cannot invest a great deal of food value or nutrition in the form of amino acids that lead to protein development. Uh, that plant cannot afford that. So it has... In the eyes of bees, the, the pollen of grasses and pollen of wind-pollinated plants are relatively unattractive. Right. While the, the, the flowering plants that, have, that are dependent on bees can put in, in order to make sure that the bees will come and visit, they will make sure that there is a nutritional value to it. Okay, so therefore bees, not just honeybees, but also bumblebees and all these are much more focused on those plants that need their presence because that, that plant will invest more resources, nutrition, or a reward in carbohydrate sources, which is nectar, to attract these insects and to give them a food reward. Okay, so the what I'm illustrating out here is a very important uh, symbiotic relationship between vastly different organisms. You know, the, the 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 bees are of course very differently organized. They have, you know, they, they they have a nervous system, they have muscles, and they have everything else, and they're totally integrated with the survivability and the reproductive success of of the of the flowering plants. So, and it happens to be that we are the pickers, humans are the pickers of fruits and everything else. And we have, uh, uh, you know, we, we like to have wonderful fresh fruits in, in the middle of winter. Okay. Uh, this is all possible or made possible only because of the presence of bees. 
not necessarily just here in North America, but it could also be somewhere in the kiwi that is produced in New Zealand. For that, you need an 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 bee to transfer this this the, the pollen grains to ensure proper what we call proper fruit set or seed set, depending on the 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 the, the plant involved or the crop involved. Right. How does the um the which one was discovered on the island? Was that the Japanese? That is that is a hornet. You're not yes. talking about bees. Okay. So we have to keep really keep those things separate. Yes. So if you're talking about the hornet, it is the Asian giant hornet. Okay. It's the largest hornet in the world. Again, that is about four bodies, uh, four times larger than your at least uh, than uh, the honeybee. It is a predator. And in fact, uh, the Asian giant hornet is the largest hornet in the world. It comes from Asia, as the name suggests. And it is what we call an apex predator. It is, uh, uh, there are no other insects uh, that will eat or hunt <laughs> the, the uh, Asian giant hornet. Um, but keep in mind that often people's fantasies run wild when they hear these stories. And partly the media has to be blamed for this. But the Asian, we, we call it the Asian giant hornet. Um, uh, but in uh, down south here, uh, south of the line where they have a propensity to sensationalize a lot of these things and um, they like to call them the murder hornets and 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 uh you know all kinds of other uh dubious qualities are being subscribed to them but i think it's again important to step back and realize well what is actually its function how does it actually behave and i think the best way to compare that with is um um, as an apex predator, if we com compare that with other apex predators in their respective environments. So, for example, here in Canada, we have up in the high Arctic, um, we have polar bears. That's an apex predator. No other, in, uh, no other animal hunts, uh, apart from humans, uh, hunts polar bear. But what is the characteristic of apex predators? They may be very fearsome and can be caused terrible damage to you and I and whoever, but the, 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 their, their density, their population density is very, very low. In other words, the probability of you running into, or anyone running into a polar bear is exceedingly low. Okay. The problem only arises that when you run into one, then you scratch your head and say, well, who can run faster? Okay, but generally speaking, you're pretty safe when you go to the high Arctic. You, the chances for you running into one is very low. Likewise, with the apex predator of the Asian giant hornet, um, they produce relatively small nests. And I say relative because the numbers may appear to be large, but it is in comparison to honeybees low. Uh, say a nest maybe of a few hundred individuals. And for most of the season, um, they hunt other insects. And quite frankly, when one flies around in the neighborhood, so to say, uh, they will ignore you altogether. We as humans tend to think that we are infinitely interesting, uh, but we're not. Within the larger natural world, we're often by other creatures viewed as a threat and a pest. Uh, but in itself, there are no hornets that say, aha, 
there is a human being. I, be I better go and, and sting it or whatever. No, not at all. They will actually avoid you quite a bit. Um, so in their normal behavior, they go after other insects. And it is only later in the season, that is to say, when that nest, over the course of the spring and summer season, when that nest grows larger and larger, and basically it reaches its maximum size uh, in and around late August. Then it comes into a phase of development where the food availability starts to decline, and it then has the urge to produce offspring that will sexually mature. Prior to that, from the spring all the way up to the early fall season, you only have females in that nest. So you have a queen that lays the eggs, and then you have a whole bunch of workers. They are in, they are sterile. They are infertile. They don't never mate. They just basically help mama to build a larger nest. So they are food gathering. And they bring that food to the nest, and then the young ones are being fed. And in that way, over the course of the summer, that nest gets larger. And when finally the late summer arrives, they will then finally uh, uh, produce offspring that will sexually mature. So these are going to be virgin queens and males. And in order to, to be able to do that, such a nest requires a great deal of animal protein. And for that, they will start to hunt honeybee colonies. And it is really interesting how that happens, is, is that you have a scout that comes from such a hornet's nest and will perhaps enter an apiary. An apiary is a place where honeybees are kept, uh, maybe one colony or maybe a hundred colonies, but mostly a few number of them. And uh, she will then assess which hive uh, with the bees in it is suitable for raiding. It will then assess that and then will, it will fly close to the entrance and it will deposit a marker, a pheromone marker, a kind of an insect hormone that it places on it and it flies back home. It will then uh, uh, basically uh, gather some of her sisters, if you will, other workers, and will then go on to a raiding party. So they go towards that, 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 that selected nest or this colony, honeybee colony, and they start then to, uh, they are trying to get the bee brood. They are not that interested in the actual honeybees, but they like to get inside and start uh, pulling out the bee brood. Before they can have an entrance or uh, uh, gain access to the, to the brood, they will start to sit in front of the hive and basically create a panic by biting and slashing whatever honeybee they can get. So the honeybee colony gets into a panic and eventually is overwhelmed by these huge insects and they will crawl in and then will pull out the bee brood, which are nice, soft, and uh, easily chewed into meatballs, essentially. And they will carry those back to their own nest and feed it to their larvae, to their young ones. Okay? Okay. The interesting thing is that these adult hornets don't feed themselves this animal protein. They feed it to their young ones, to the larvae. The larvae dig part partially digest this chewed up material, and then a portion of that is regurgitated, and it is that regurgitated, partially digested protein 
That is what these adult hornets eat and actually live off. Okay. So it's a, it's a very complicated, lovely little story. But so they are totally different from our dear beloved honeybees. Right. Um, to follow up on, on that, uh, I had the opportunity to watch a documentary where they talk about how the honeybees responded or um, the bees responded. And it sounds like they, um, when that scout comes in, they all started moving together to heat up the hive in order to, it seems like, melt the, the body of that hornet. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, the problem here is, is that we talked earlier about uh, the genus Apis. And so in Europe, we have the European honeybee, it's called, or the Western honeybee, and it is called Apis mellifera, okay? In Asia, where these hornets originally came from, you have there another honeybee species called Apis serrana, not Apis mellifera, but Apis serrana, the Asian honeybee. We don't uh, like that honeybee because it's not very productive, and there are a number of negatives associated with it. But it has evolved in an environment where it is predated upon by these hornets, and they have learned or acquired a defense technique, if you will, uh, that uh, puts serious limits on these hornets. And what they do is they, they ball an intruding hornet and create an enormous fighting ball of, of, of these uh, these honeybees, uh, they try to sting and everything else, and quite a few of them die in the process, of course, because this hornet is a big one. But basically what they do is they get so tightly around the body of this hornet that they raise the temperature. And they raise the temperature at a level above the lethal niveau for the hornet. In other words, they suffocate and overheat, or <laughs> you might say cook, this hornet. Some of the bees are just about close to death themselves also. So it doesn't go without an, an, a serious price to pay, but the nest is protected that way. So, but that is, you're dealing with an other honeybee species, Apis serrana. And some uninformed people say, well, well, why don't we get Apis serrana out here? No, we don't want it. Because in addition uh, to poor productivity, the Apis serrana carry with it, uh, carries a, a number of, of, of diseases and pathogens, viral pathogens that we certainly don't want to hear in, in North America or in Europe. What do you, th you study this. Is it yeah. really interesting to see that evolution of at least uh, Apis serrana and go like, how did it, like, how does this, like, this is so interesting to me to think that there's these, um, there's this problem that they don't know how to solve. Um, they're getting wiped out. It seems like, uh, from what I recall, uh, the, the hornets can kill like 30 bees and like just so quickly. And so to come, it seems insurmountable when you you stop there and then you hear about how uh the bees kind of responded in at least that region does that does that set you back and go like this is so interesting yeah well, oh it, it is but but keep in mind uh, um, the, to acquire that defensive response of bawling an intruding hornet uh, that will take, uh, you know, thousands of years, if not tens of thousands of years for that kind of behavior to, to be incorporated in our honeybees, Western honeybees. However, our Western honeybees are managed by beekeepers. And beekeepers like to defend their beloved bees. And I can tell you since 2019, when the first hornets arrived, 
in Nanaimo, um, uh, and were the, the nest was subsequently uh, uh, destroyed. Uh, I have received quite a few um, um, uh, suggestions and ideas and designs by beekeepers how to deal with these Asian giant hornets. Uh, the, these these hornets have a particular. Uh, they are not only physically very large, um, but uh, because they are about five centimeters in length, body length, and they have a wingspan of up to about seven centimeters, which is getting close to that of a small hummingbird. Um, they they are characterized by having a rom- an, an oversized head, uh, a head that is shaped like a shield. Uh, it is a very impressive looking insect and that large oversized head and the body size in general makes it kind of difficult to crawl through very narrow spaces. And it is precisely this is what they call the Achilles heel, if you will, of the hornet in that uh, there are already all kinds of uh, uh, designs of, of, of barriers that beekeepers have designed to make it exceptionally difficult for these hornets to crawl into an into a nest of honeybees, while the honeybees themselves, being much smaller, can go in and out. So I think that uh, the point what I'm trying to get at here is is that I have full confidence in the savvy and innovative minds of beekeepers who will help and protect their bees from these hornets in case these hornets establish themselves out here in uh, on the West Coast. And that is a whole different story because um, that is not proven yet at all. We have been working very closely since 2019 uh, through surveys and clo- close collaboration with our friends in Washington State to, uh, uh, to hunt down these hornets. And whenever these hornets' nests are found, they are destroyed. So it's, it's – um, and I have – the optimist, not hope, really, uh, cautious hope uh, that indeed we will be successful. That's fantastic. Can you walk us through the timeline of what took place from that first initial, uh, who did the call? And it sounds like um, from how you described it, that the uh, Nanaimo beekeepers played a really positive role in addressing these problems. Can you walk us through that first sighting to you getting involved to starting to make a plan to address this? Yeah, it was basically in August, the middle of August of 2019, when uh, a beekeeper contacted me and said, you know, there are some huge hornets out here that are pestering my bees. And there was a man who was sitting in front of his hive, you know, uh, hives, uh, communing with them, just looking at the traffic of it and uh, relaxing in a nice lawn chair and saw these hornets. He had the, uh, the quickness of mind to catch them. And they were then couriered over, and we identify them as as Vespa mandarinia. In the subsequent weeks, uh, or in the weeks following these 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 finds in middle of uh, August, uh, there were a number of other reports of sightings. Uh, some of them were photographic uh, uh, proof. They were not all physical collections, but uh, uh, photographic evidence that clearly uh, they were there. And uh, this is when I uh, engaged the uh, local beekeeping uh, community in Nanaimo and uh, uh, with uh, by plotting them on a map, these sightings, it became quite evident that we were talking here about a cluster of findings or sightings. And that is a key because through triangulation on this map, if you connect all these finds together, there was a very distinct geographical area where it was very likely that they would have a nest somewhere. 
Now, from the publication, uh, published materials in, from Asia, it is very evident that they have a certain preference of a certain habitat in which they establish their their nests. Um, and that it tends to be uh, maritime forests with a high level of uh, uh, humidity and dense undercover and preferably on a sloped surface. So there is a re- reduced risk of flooding, for example. Um, uh, and they are typically what we call a cavity nester. Um, cavity nesters are those that basically have an, an hollow space or they dig a hollow space where they can create their nest. It could also be in a hollow tree or in a rock crevice. Uh, this sets them apart, of course, from many wasps and hornets that build in the open. So typically when you walk out here, you sometimes in the late summer have these paper brown colored nests. So they are not in a cavity, but they build a a spherical shaped nest in which they raise their young. So these Asian giant hornets like a cavity environment. And so uh, these, uh, we don't have the personnel and the resources to do this on a, on a, on a quick basis by going through all of this searching, but these beekeepers did on their own accord. It was quite remarkable. And within a remarkably short time period, they uh, identified, they located this particular nest uh, in a public park, right in, well, yeah, in, in central Nanaimo, which is quite remarkable, and uh, proceeded with its destruction at night um, because you do these things only in the dark, not in the daytime. Because How do you destroy them? Well, uh, there are different ways. Uh, (laughs) At that time, because it was also new, um, what they decided to do is um, they didn't, for for further study purposes, there was an entomologist involved in one of these beekeepers who, a trained entomologist. Uh, So they decided to first um, uh, basically uh, blast them with CO2. And that deprives them of, of oxygen, of course, and you stun them, uh, that is only short term. And while they are stunned, uh, then he would, uh, with gloves and everything else, he would have a, a bucket with, uh, with uh, alcohol, with uh, windshield wiper fluid, for example, methanol, um, and throw them in as quickly as he could. Um, after a short while, they would wake up again. So he had to blast them again with CO2. Uh, and, and in that way, it was a kind of a slow procedure. And in this way, you will, of course, never get all of them. So uh, you get a bit of exposure and danger of getting stung. And that is also a couple of people there also did get stung. Um, but they they're experienced beekeepers. They know what what it's like to get stung. Uh, this is a far larger insect, of course, and more painful, but it's not um, um, like an, a person who is not familiar with that would ha- be hard-pressed not to uh, 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 panic because these insects are very large and intimidating. So they were successful. Uh, if we find a nest today, uh, we do it very differently. We would just cordon it off, uh, make sure that there are no public access and no media, for sure not, uh, things like this. And we will then plan an evening where we can go in and we use an, an insecticidal foam and, 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 and encase them in this insecticidal foam. We don't do anything else. 
The next day we'll come back, we'll apply it again, and maybe on the third night we will start to dig out the nest. Right. Okay. Uh, we are less uh, concerned about um, you know preserving some specimens for whatever further research. Let me go back to what the chronological set of events were. So after this nest was discovered, that was on September the 17th, so that was basically a month after the first sighting, this nest was destroyed. And, of course, uh, some beautiful samples were collected. And uh, they were later they were sequenced. In other words, DNA analysis was applied to them, and they were uh, identified to have had a Japanese origin. Okay. Um, we thought that this was the end of the story for the year, because it was already in September. We thought, well, that's, that's it. And then suddenly, in the middle of November of 2019, we got a report in from um, someone in White Rock, uh, on the mainland, who uh, who had uh, uh, found one of these large hornets, and the photographic evidence was quite clear. Unfortunately, we're never able to collect the actual specimen that was thrown out and destroyed, but um, uh, we were shocked to learn that this insect was active. Not only that it was on the mainland, but it was still active in in the middle of November. Then three three weeks later, in early December. Two specimens were found in Washington State, in Blaine. And that uh, raised further concerns that we real, uh, realized that there was some active, uh, you know, a hornet activity going on out there in on the mainland. Um, this, uh, the, the, the specimens that were collected uh, in, in Blaine were also sequenced. And they were found to be of South Korean origin, or generally Korean origin. Uh, that is perhaps of academic interest, where they came from, being Japanese or Korean, that doesn't really matter for the Joe average. Uh, but what is significant there is that clearly we were dealing with different introductions at different times. And this placed a completely different picture into the scenario. So for uh, it was all late two thousand nineteen. So we set up surveillance uh, surveys both on the mainland as well as on Vancouver Island to see what was going on. Um, I leave the Vancouver Island now apart. So we were into twenty twenty, uh, and the Americans were doing the same thing. Uh, we surveyed and had bottle traps and all kinds of other traps out close to the border from White Rock all the way to Alder Grove. And um, it were not only our traps that we were manning, but we also engaged, uh, you know, beekeepers. And there are an estimated 200, close to 200 beekeepers, 180 beekeepers or something in that target area in the Fraser Valley. Uh, we engaged, uh, you know, various municipalities, uh, you know, parks and rec uh, departments so that their crews that are outside keep an eye open. We also gave them advice as to what to do and not to do in case they do find some of these things. Uh, who to report to. We had uh, an engagement of the Simiamu First Nation that was involved. Uh, in 2020, we had uh, um, uh, the RCMP, of course, involved because of the border. You know, we wanted to let them know from, look, don't be cavalier. If you find something, let us know. 
the Canadian Border Agency was involved, at least notified about all these things. So we had, uh, and not just that, we had, of course, also the public at large involved. And uh, we invited people to, essentially, whenever they found a kind of an ominous, large, wasp-like creature, take a photograph, send it in, send it in so that we can identify it. Right. Um, out of the survey activities that uh, took place in 2020, there were a grand total of five specimens were found in that year. Unfortunately, these uh, they were not. We could not consider those as a cluster of finds because they were very far apart, both geographically as well as in time. Some of them were found in May, others were found all the way in October, so in, or November in 2020. So there was no uh, uh, correlation between these finds. And in fact, the total area exceeded 350 square kilometers. So there was no way we were able to, 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 to locate nests just on the basis of these five finds. In the United States, in Washington State, it was in October of 2020 when they found their first nest. And that was about a couple of kilometers south of the Canada-U.S. border um, in equivalency to Langley, south of Langley. And that was subsequently destroyed. Um, uh, they had a very dramatic, uh, you know, they had a big film crew out there. They had, you know, Hollywood had descended kind of thing. And, you know, it was on the news and, you know, it was quite a, a circus. Uh, again, we don't do it this way out here in Canada. Um, so that was the end result. In 2021, so this last year, we went through the whole survey, caboodled again, and uh, we did not find anything except one single worker, small-shaped worker hornet, about 200 meters from the Canada-U.S. border in late September uh, that we believe, uh, we are pretty sure, had come from a nest that was destroyed by the Americans uh, around that time. Uh, in, in Washington state, they found three nests over in, throughout that whole year. They have also done sequencing again, and they discovered that the one, uh, the one in October, as well as the three in 2021, last year, all of them were uh, related over 99%, which means they all came from one original introduction and then spread. And the reason I mention this is because uh, if we can now talk about the chances for this pest to establish itself here on the West Coast, um, if you have such a lack of genetic diversity, you have uh, much less of a chance to establish yourself successfully uh, because what basically means is that when you have a nest and it produces at the end of the summer it produces males and females then they don't have much of an option to go down the street and have fun with a set of individuals from another nest they may but that nest is basically so closely related that you're dealing essentially with brothers and, and sisters mating with each other so you have a high degree of inbreeding um, again that lowers that uh, you have uh, as a result of that a much higher rate of uh, unsuccessful matings 
in fertile matings and uh, a an, an high level of attrition. In other words, individuals that just basically do not really make it. Uh, in addition, of course, we have uh, uh, a high degree of uh, uh, human predation on these hornets. In other words, whenever a nest is found, humans come in and destroy it. That doesn't bode well for the survival of that pest either. Uh, lastly, uh, well, there are a couple of other things. Um, its preference for uh, uh, maritime climates are as important too. Uh, so uh, the chances for them to be successfully uh, in, uh, uh, spreading into, let's say, the Okanagan is not very likely because of the climate. Further into the interior of British Columbia, you have too many mountain ridges and mountain ranges to overcome. And then, of course, the bald-faced prairie. There is no way that these insects can survive out there. Now, of course, humans play a role in the spread of these things. So it doesn't mean that you would never have a chance for one of these hornets to be transported. That's quite possible. But it is a whole different matter to be successful in establishing a reproductive population. That's much tougher. Uh, that in addition to it, uh, we have here in British Columbia a predominant evergreen vegetative cover, evergreen forests, while in its native range in eastern Asia, China, Korea, Japan, uh, that is comprised of a lot of deciduous forests. And these that kind of vegetation dictates a very different uh, insect fauna than what you would have out here. In other words, the dinner table is going to be very different out here compared to what they are accustomed to back back home. Uh, and we just don't know how successful this insect could be if it would establish itself out here and 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 then predate on on an insect a combination or fauna that it is not familiar with. So, in other words, its ecological impact here on the coast, we just don't know. Uh, it could well be highly destructive because it may predate on other hornets and wasps. Or it may just, and it is known to be uh, hunting down other wasps, by the way. Uh, so, we don't know what kind of impact that it would have. But I still have quite a bit of uh, optimism uh, and hope that uh, this this character is not going to be successful. That is so interesting, and I'm grateful that we're able to go long form because that is a lot to explain, and I think that I couldn't agree with you more that um, it has been um, overhyped by the media, and that's why I felt like it would be a good place to start is because I think that we enjoy – there's something about us that enjoys the sensationalism. We enjoy the idea that there are sure. there are threats all around us and we have to be ready, and I also agree that um, there's something so – um, maybe not narcissistic, but there's something so self-absorbed about people that we think the second there's something going on, whether it's a black widow, whether it's a giant hornet, that it's after us, that it's after us and our children and our family. And it's just, that's its only focus. And we kind of, we enjoy thinking that. We enjoy thinking that we have to protect ourselves and get ready, yeah. start putting nets around our house. Mm -hmm. That's the kind yeah. of mentality people yeah. go for. Um, what was it like working with the Nanaimo beekeepers? Um, you had a lot of admiration in the articles I saw that 
there are these communities, there are these people who care about their honeybees, they care about their community, and they were willing to step up. And I think that that's, that's sort of what this podcast is about, is about the community coming together. And it sounds like you saw that, and it uh, it really kind of made you happy or, or joyful about that. Oh, uh, it's, 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 uh, I don't want to go into too many philosophical diatribes here, but you know, uh, Machiavelli wrote it down, uh, some 500 years ago, quite well in the, in the prince, uh, um, the best way for a politician to unite, uh, an, uh, an unruly crowd is by identifying a threat from the outside, uh, with the current malaise between Russia and Ukraine. I mean, it is the best example you can have. Uh, likewise, with beekeepers, uh, beekeepers can be highly individualistic and uh, often in competition with each other. But when they get together, they can talk about what they all love and it is to do with bees. And if there is a common threat from outside, uh, let's say like this hornet, boy, everybody is on their warpath to make sure that these hornets are not going to have too much of a chance. Um, Yes, beekeepers are a very dedicated and a very enthusiastic lot, if you will. Um, and and uh, I, I, I think that with what their engagement was critical in the success of eliminating uh, this pest from, from Vancouver Island. And uh, I, I like to add to this that after the elimination had taken place, uh, since that event, so that was... September 2019, despite constant surveillance in various parts of Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands, not a single specimen was sighted or collected since that time. And since that is now approaching three years, or at least two and a half years, um, I think it is reasonable to uh, to assume that uh, um, uh, that we will declare Vancouver Island and Gulf Islands free of the Asian giant hornet. And sometimes people ask, well, what is the actual risk? I mean, why do we fuss so much about it if you have an apex predator in relatively small colonies and so on? Uh, apart from, of course, what I said earlier about, uh, you know, they can pester honeybee colonies and they may have an ecological impact. I think that uh, the the nest that was found in this public park highlighted the risk that is associated with the presence of these these hornets in our environment, um, because they are cavity builders or ground nesters for most of the time. Generally, people uh, or livestock or animal uh, pets, for example, or wildlife, are not aware of their presence until they just about step on them or step on the nest, or the entrance of the nest, or, you know, you walk your little lovely dog, and typically what a dog does is he often puts his nose in places where he shouldn't. Um, and if, if, if that happens, uh, the hornets will come out en masse, or, you know, you don't need that many. Um, and that really would pose an, 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 a public health risk. And again, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but it's, uh, it's definitely a risk that we just don't wish. Um, and then, of course, uh, humans to have a tendency to do the wrong thing when they get into a panic situation like this. Uh, they tend to run away, which is perfect, but they often run into the open, which is the worst thing to do. Because, And that is not just applying to these Asian giant hornets. It's the same with any wasp that you nest that you disturb. Don't run into the open because they can fly much, much faster than you can run. Um 
and and then with waving arms and 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 hands and everything else you are a visual target that is very easily identified by these hornets the trick by any hornet or wasp so the trick here is is that this, as soon as you get into an uh, into a confrontation like this is to aim for, well of course physical distance away from the nest is important but try to aim for shrubbery in which you crawl through the shrubbery. You can even go on your hands and knees as long as you crawl crawl through there as quickly as you can because the sweeping branches behind you will confuse the wasps and the hornets. So that's that's really important to, to do. So No problem. Um, I'm interested to understand... Um, that's my phone, darn it all. No problem. Okay. Um, I'm interested to understand what the harms can be of these um, of these hornets. Is it comparable to like a black widow, or is it is it less so? How much worse is it in comparison to a bumblebee or something oh, like that? A cricket, of course. It has to be a summer cricket. <laughs> it's perfect. Okay. Um, the, the, the problem with 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 these Asian giant hornets compared to let's say with a honeybee, because beekeepers get stung by honeybees. Is, Quite often, of course, honeybees, uh, they're much smaller, of course, uh, but what they have is they have a stinging apparatus and, and, uh, which is an, an, uh, well, all these stinging insects, they have a stinging apparatus that consists of a small sphere that contains the, the, the venom. And then you have surrounding it is a muscle tissue and a nerve node that is programmed to say contract, relax, contract, relax. Okay. And then you have a stinger uh, in honeybees. That stinger is a harpoon. So it has little hooks. And that is why when a honeybee stings you, uh, being an elastic skin, it holds on to the stinger and the, the bee cannot pull it out. So eventually it will fly off and it creates a big wound in the back of the abdomen of the bee. That is what kills the bee eventually, basically a huge wound. It doesn't die just because it stung something. If it manages to pull its stinging apparatus out, uh, that bee can sting again for sure. So that that could happen with like other creatures, other and yeah, like uh, right. it might sting other things. But when it comes to a human, it does that harpoon, that's and then it can't correct. get out because we're too big. No, our skin is elastic. It doesn't mean our size. It's just okay. simply we have a rubbery skin, oh, okay. and that holds on to the harpoon. In an evolutionary term, actually, that stinger was designed, essentially, to fight other insects. And insects have their skeleton on the outside, an exoskeleton arrangement, right? So if you have a harpoon, you rip that out and you create a much bigger wound than if it is only a dagger. Now, the hornet, like the Asian giant hornet, has a dagger that doesn't have harpoon. So it can easily pull it out again and sting again. And it can sting repeatedly. Now, its huge size means that it not only carries a much larger volume of venom, but this particular venom also contains a peptide or an, an enzyme uh, that is causing tissue uh, necrosis. In other words, the tissue of the animal that or human that is being stung starts to dissolve at the point of stinging. Right. In other words, the, the wound is created much larger. You have then a higher risk of, of infection. There's bleeding taking place. So it's a, it's a, it's a more dramatic encounter than, than what it is with a honeybee. 
Now, that is the immediate effect of it. But the problem is, is that um, uh, most of us, most people, have, shall we say, uh, the the uh, uh, the ability, uh, our chemical factory in our body is capable to neutralize this venom uh, after a short period of time. There are, of course, some people that are uh, having hypersensitivity to these kind of venoms, and we call those people allergic. Now, there is a lot of misconception about allergies pertaining to these stinging insects. Um, A lot of people claim to be allergic, but technically they're not. But the reason that they claim that is because when they get stung, mostly by, let's say, by a bee or by an, your, your typical garden variety wasp, they do the wrong thing. So a lot of people, what they do is they say, apart from all the swearing and the agony and whatever, they have now, their hand is, is, they got a, st- they got stung. Uh, so what do they do? They follow often medical advice that is often totally wrong because most doctors cannot be expected to know anything about insects uh, or stinging insects and their behavior. So what do people do? They uh, go to the cabinet, to the medicine cabinet, and they find some ointment or something, and they put ointment on it. Like polysporin or something? Yeah, Yeah. totally nonsensical, but, you know, it feels good psychologically, apart from the swearing and all the complaining. Or they put it under the water, and then they have soap, and then they wash it in the surface and do all this wonderful stuff. Yeah. But again, step back and say, well, what what are we actually doing? That venom is already underneath the surface of this of the of of the skin okay it's not on the skin it is underneath it so washing with soap is silly doesn't mean anything but what you do is with by touching your affected area and and basically washing and drying and touching it what you're doing is you're rubbing that venom deeper into the tissue and you spread it around So after a few hours or the next day, you're going to have an elephant hand, okay? Now, that is pretty cool at the office. You can say, look at what happened to me. I'm hyper allergic to it. No, not at all. The hardest thing in the world is not to do anything. In fact, you get stung and you can swear what you like. That's not the problem. But don't put it underneath the water and you know, start rubbing it or put ointments on it or anything. The key here is that you, the only thing that you could do is to cool it down. And cooling down means you put an ice cube on it. And don't rub it. Just let that tissue become as cold as you can get it because that basically immobilizes the venom and it stays right where it is. And your body will have generally the chemical capabilities to break this down um, after, an, you know, maybe a day or so. I know it's this agonizing, uh, the, 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 the desire to rub it because it starts to itch. Uh, the desire to rub it is, is enormous. And it is, you really have to force yourself not to rub it. Right. But that is key. Now, for those people that have a true true allergy to these kind of venoms, and again, it could be just honeybees or wasps or any of those stinging insects. The first time you would ever get stung, if you prove to be of hyper, have a hypersensitivity or a true allergy to these venoms, the very first sting that you would ever receive is not deadly. 
That one is mostly showing signs that give, your body start to show you uh, all kinds, of, uh, provide you with all kinds of signals. Mm-hmm. For example, you get stung in the hand or in the arm, but you get after a short while uh, discoloration or redness on your chest and in your neck. Okay, you start to hyperventilate. You know, fast breathing. You're gonna get a snotty nose. You start to tear in the eyes, um, and and you're breathing quickly. These are signals that are basically caused by your body responding to this venom, and it generates histamines. Okay, and those histamines cause you to do all these wacky things. This is a signal from, you know, this is not this is not good news. So that's why we tend to take antihistamines. Uh, so that is a signal. It is mostly that then a week later or two weeks later or a month later, if you would get stung again, those symptoms may get worse. Okay? So that is why some people carry these, these uh, EpiPens with them in case they have a true allergic reaction. So the courses that I teach on introductory beekeeping and things like this, that is also one of the things we cover. Is that you know all of you may have a great interest to keep bees, but test yourself first that you are not going to be hugely disappointed in a few months and you have your bees and then you get stung and then you realize them, whoa, I have a serious medical issue. Right. Okay. Um, so generally your body becomes accustomed to it and there to these bee venoms. And uh, keep in mind, um, there are also very positive signs to getting stung because it has been known for hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, that bee venom is very effective against arthritic pains. Okay, um, We are so accustomed in our modern world to always run to the pharmacy and get ourselves a magic tablet of some sort, but... Um, a uh, hundred years ago and more, uh, the pharmaceutical industry didn't exist. Uh, you had some snake oil uh, uh, characters, but generally uh, the true pharmaceutical industry didn't exist. And at that time, I still have some old textbooks from Europe where you see actually that bee venom was collected uh, by people that had, of course, a veil on and everything else. And they had something like what they do with snake venom that they have a membrane and they force the snake to, to, to the teeth to go in and then the, a few droplets are collected. Well, basically the same thing was done then to collect uh, bee venom. And that bee venom was then used in a reduced or in a diluted form for people that suffered from acute uh, 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 rheumatoid arthritis. And that seems to, uh, so we say, alleviate these pains. And it is true, even though I don't suffer from arthritis, I mean, I sometimes when I have gotten stung, let's say, in near the knuckles of my, in my hand or one of my fingers, that it gives it a very nice, warm sensation afterwards. Yeah, there is a bit of swelling, of course, but uh, it is, you, the temperature is much, much higher. It is almost as if your body is flushing your joints in that area, and that is what alleviates the the arthritic pain, of course. So um, there is even in North America so-called the American Apitherapy Society, where they use bee venom for people that suffer from various ails, and they use bee venom as the principal uh, agent to bring that relief. So it's uh, it's not uh, – there are some rewards, if you will. 
Wow, that is, I think, so interesting to realize that we do have this mindset in life towards wanting to go to the pharmaceutical industry or wanting to go to our doctor and wanting to have our pain or discomfort validated. And there is something about this culture right now that's interested in the problems we're facing. We're very introspective on the challenges. And that's not to say people don't face anxiety and depression, but it's it's almost like a currency right now. It's something that other people will validate for you. And you're right, going to going into work the next day and saying, I got bit by a spider and look at how horrible my hand is. It's like it gives you some sort of bragging rights that mm. you've, you've faced some sort of challenge and you've overcome adversity. And um, I think that we... We often like to demonize things. We like to put things into a box of good or bad, evil um, or pure. And uh, we miss out on the fact that we're not perfect. Um, other people aren't perfect. Um, animals, creatures, insects, they all have struggles. They have complexities. They're, they're not a one or a zero. They're part of the ecosystem. And I think that that's the struggle we have, particularly with spiders, is um, often people will go, oh, like spiders, they're super dangerous. And then there's always that person who kind of goes, right, but they take care of the insects and they make sure their populations are good. And then you kind of go, right, but I don't want them in my house. And then there's always this balancing act that we do. And we, we've kind of grown, I think, with spiders to understand their role. And I think we've done the same with bees um, when we started realizing that these bees were absolutely essential to our survival. But then there's still those people who have hesitations or discomfort. Um, but you're right, there's this currency to want to do something about it. And I don't know why perhaps we underestimate our body. Um, that's become commonplace to think that um, we need something else, that our body isn't capable of solving it. And I think that that's short-sighted because when it comes to um, depression or anxiety, we know exercise helps. Well, that's you pushing your body. That's you straining your body in a positive way that helps mm. you get stronger. And we're okay with that. But then again, when it comes to uh, wanting to fix problems with bees or, or with certain things, we start to go, well, the doctor knows what to do. And it's interesting that you say, well, they're not bee experts and that's fine. That's not their fault, but they're not experts in this area. And so they're not going to give you the perfect information um, because they don't have a, an understanding the way that you do. Um, can I ask how many times have you been stung? Because I'm guessing based on what you've said, oh. you've been stung a lot of times. Well, you know, of course, I, I, I have been around bees for uh, for a long time, <laughs> and and so I I wouldn't I, c I couldn't even guess what the number of times are. I mean, it's not that I invite stings. It's just that when I go into a bee yard, into an apiary, I still, depending on the time of the year, um, when when I deal with larger colonies, I I have a veil um, because it's not nice to have an, a bee crawling on the on the edge of your nose or in your ear or close to your mouth or whatever. Uh, um, generally, bees are not particularly interested in stinging. It's just simply you don't want to have them in your face. But for example, in my course, I, uh, courses, I always suggest to people, look, don't you wear gloves. Because you have sometimes people that, that have an entire approach to beekeeping uh, where they uh, dress up as if they are going to the Arctic. Okay, while it is a summer day. Uh, bees, if you are, and I'm trying to convey the idea to, 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 to aspiring beekeepers, but even see, see, uh, experienced beekeepers to say, look, when you, when you interact with the bees, you should consider yourself a visitor and you should be polite in your visit 
to the be- to, to to the colony. When you open up a hive in which the colony lives, you you, you handle them with with gentleness uh, and 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 with peace. You come there as an as an as a good messenger rather than as an intrusive. Uh, a predatory animal? No, not at all. You should you you should be polite. When I have seen it over many many years of often beekeepers coming in um, uh, that have uh, you know heavy gloves on and they have veils and I don't know all kinds of stuff. When they go into a hive and they take the frames out uh, to, to 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 look at the bees. When they have gloves on, you see them that they are, tend to be far rougher, far more abrupt in their movements than if you have your bare hands. With your bare hands, you have much greater dexterity. And not just that, you know that if you are misbehaving, if you do it too erratically and too quickly, then the bees will remind you uh, by occasionally giving you a sting. Okay, not that that is an an an, an, an guiding principle, but the essence of it is is that your hands you can wash your hands regularly as well, rinse them with just plain water while you're in the bee yard, so that you have no sticky fingers and you can you can you have much greater dexterity and uh, an an ability to manipulate the equipment much better because eventually it is all kind of sticky because of the honey or the wax or things of that kind. So uh, I try to convince beekeepers to commune with the bees, try to have a closer look at what they do and why they do things. Um, I hear so often of beekeepers coming into a bee yard and open up a hive and they say, oh, we're going to go and look for the queen. Okay. Yeah, that's a very nice idea. Why? Is that because it is a larger bee compared to all the others? Is that is that the reason why? Often people don't realize that you don't have to search for the queen at all. Just leave her alone. All that you have to do is inspect those frames and, and look at the brood patterns to see whether there are aches and that there are larvae in there or capped brood. If, if you have all of that in there, you don't have to muck around in that colony and disturb that brood nest too much. You can leave them alone and go to the next, uh, to the next colony. Um, you also have to use your other senses. It is not only visual, but you could also, you have to also listen to the bees. When you lift out a frame and let's say the bees are queenless, if the queen has been lost because of some injury or whatever the reasons are, the bees sound differently. Because they walk on the frames where you're taken out and you see them, they are slightly nervous. They walk around kind of a little bit. Uh, the girls are all edgy. Sorry, girls. I mean, they're all female. Okay. So I often refer to them as girls. Yeah. And so when they, when they walk around on the frame in a kind of a slightly nervous manner, you know, something is cooking out there that's not entirely correct. Okay. Um, again, that is both visual, but also sound wise. They have a slightly different pitch compared to a colony that is happy with an egg-laying queen in there, everything seems to be happy and in balance, then the bees ignore you altogether. They walk quietly on the comb. You see them, they, they ignore you. 
Again, we are not that important. So if we can make ourselves virtually non-visible, the better it is when we visit a colony. So I recall years ago, uh, there was a field day organized by a local beekeeping club. And the beekeeper in question a uh, very experienced beekeeper, uh, but he wanted to perhaps dramatize the situation a bit. And with 30 people around, yeah, you can imagine how confusing that was for the bees that were flying around out there. He selected, for reasons that were not clear to me, an, an, an particular colony that was quite large with a whole bunch of boxes on top of each other. Yeah. And he took th- started to take that uh, apart and he was going to show the queen. Okay, and you had there all these novice beekeepers in sparkling clean uh, coveralls and veils and gloves and everything else. And I was not in the front at all, but I I was in the back out there. But the way how I could hear from a distance that there was something wrong with that colony. And I didn't know what, of course, but I knew that the pitch, the sound was wrong, was different. And as further he went into this thing he couldn't find the queen because of course the queen there was no queen in that colony it wasn't queenless colony and by that time by the time he finally concluded that there is no queen the bees were pissed they were really angry and they were flying around and they were basically unhappy uh, so that's why I like to always uh, uh, recommend beekeepers when they manage their colonies to try to listen to the bees and to commune with them as best as you can and observe them to see why do these things why do the why do they do things or why don't they do things um, there are reasons for all of that um, and also in much of their management they should try to follow the rhythm of honeybees over the course of the season so in the early spring and summer much of the summer Bees are just so busy with themselves. You are just a an, an, an big blob of, of interference, but there is no further issue. It is only when it is late in the summer when the wasps, the local wasp population, becomes hungry and other bees become uh, devious and like to steal honey from other colonies. So you have then what they call the robbing stage, the robbing uh, period uh, in late summer. That is when bees can become a bit nastier, a bit more defensive, of course. Uh, and so then it's getting better to wear gloves and to use a little bit more smoke and do these kind of things in order to handle the bees better. But for much of the season, you can come in there just in your t-shirt and you put your veil on and uh, and bare, bare hands and you can visit a honeybee colony and have no problem with it at all. What you just said is so important. I um, I interviewed Eddie Gardner, who's an elder here um, in the Fraser Valley. Mm-hmm. And um, as I mentioned, he describes bugs as the ones that crawl rather than bugs. And I think that that's so important because – and he didn't do it like intentionally to um, – make this point, but I think the logic behind it was that we get this attitude of get off me, I don't want that insect on me, I don't want this bug near me, and we start to treat everything around us like it's less than us, that it's not as important. And I think that we forget that we're just one part of an ecosystem, that the bees aren't that concerned with us all the time. And we get so 
um, I think we're as we disconnect from nature, as we live in apartments, as we um, disconnect more and more, and we live in cities, we start to forget our role, our connection, and that these things are going to be taking place regardless of whether or not we're watching them, um, and that it is a privilege to be among them. Yeah. That is sometimes how you feel when you're around certain people. It's like uh, when you think of some celebrities that you like, and the idea of being able to sit with them for ten minutes, people go, "This is a privilege. It's an honor." Like, oh my goodness like to to get your attention but then we don't do that with the bees or we don't do that with animals in the wilderness we want it to entertain us and uh, when you were describing how people kind of treat the bees it reminds me of that scene in Harry Potter where the, the young boy starts banging on the glass and goes move and like tries to get the snake to entertain him um, and that's often what happens at zoos is people want the, the creatures behind the glass or um, behind the cage to entertain us to make us surprised to give a grab to do something that shows their fearsomeness um, rather than just appreciating that this is a, a majestic animal, that this is a, an ecosystem in this, this bee habitat, and they, they all have a job to do. And you just get to watch. And what, a, what an honor it is because I've never gotten to watch bees in that way. And so just to be there would be a privilege. But then we have this instinct to want to find the queen and we want that queen to entertain us. And we want to see that big one. And there's always this instinct, the bigger the better kind of... United States attitude. And the other thing you said that I'd like you to elaborate on is um, I interviewed Brian Minter. Um, oh, he yes. he yep. runs Minter Country Gardens. Yep. And you two just had an overlap that I saw. He talked about being able to walk over to a plant, um, pick it up, look at it, just see it from a distance and know that that, that area needs water over there, that, that those plants need food. And he said he can just feel that, that he, he's, gotten, he's worked with plants his whole life. Mm. He knows them better than, than most. And yeah. so he can just see oh like that whole patch over there needs water or it needs food or it needs more sunlight or it needs something he can just feel that Mm -hmm. that's kind of what you just described being able to hear from a distance the sound that bees make and there is something so heartfelt there's something so motivational something so inspiring about what you two do because you've found what you're passionate about but you know it better than most and you you take responsibility um to to that environment to the bees to the plants that other people miss out on and they miss that deeper understanding of how bees work they miss out on the deeper understanding of how what plants need and i'm just interested to know what that what that journey has been like to to understand these these bees better and to to learn about them and have that humility of like oh i can hear that and i and i understand what that means and and that's so cool yeah, it's it's of course uh, these things tend to grow on you the longer you are involved with these things, and and of course I don't want to date myself too much, but I mean I was introduced to bees, you know, about sixty years ago, and but if you look at uh, there is an enormous interest nowadays in the public to get into bees and beekeeping. And that is why these courses that I teach on an, on an, on an online course, I mean, you know, it attracts, I mean, the one that I just finished, I mean, I had about almost 800 people on there. And some of them were <laughs> not just in Canada. I mean, there was, you know, some from, from Africa, from Senegal and Kenya and South America, South Africa. There were some from Kazakhstan and Nepal. I mean, it's crazy how they, how they got wind of this. But if I look at what what is the interest, uh, first of all, I do not know uh, in, uh, you know, with absolute certainty, the average age, but many of the people that want to get involved in bees are typically in their middle age, 
period or older. It is often people that are younger. Some of them are interested, but by and large, they're too busy with other things, either from raising children or paying the mortgage or doing things that are occupying their their minds. It is typical that we as humans tend to travel through the various stages in our lives and become slightly more retrospective of what we are doing and what the future will bring in our lives when we get into this if I can call it this, this middle-aged period. And uh, one of the things I think that I hear quite often of people uh, say about why they are motivated to get into bees is because it is an, uh, it's a, it, uh, it offers an opportunity to open up a door, if you will, into observing a world that they probably experienced when they were small children. Small children are soaking up whatever they see in their environment, and if they are lucky enough uh, to have been in, in a flowering garden or in an area where you have bees and butterflies and all kinds of other small little creatures, they can sit out there when they are young and observe these insects or these creatures, not just insects, in their own accord, uh, without making a judgment saying, oh, that is a dangerous one or it's not a dangerous one. They observe them from, hey, these bees, for example, are visiting flowers, and why do they visit these flowers? They get their food from there. It is it is like an, a totally unspoiled experience of being closer to nature. When you get into your middle age years, you have a desire after having been chasing after, you know, your mortgages and all kinds of other problems and car payments and you name what, that you have, many people have a desire to take stock of where they go in their lives. And I think that that is where often people become more, you know, attracted to, 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 to these things like bees. Bees have the extraordinary quality that they can show us to uh, to highlight and to display the interconnectiveness, if you will, between the living creatures. Uh, you mentioned earlier about an ecosystem that is full of all kinds of interdependencies of different organisms. And that is precisely what bees display so very clearly. And we can use them as a means to observe that more closely. It is therefore also, I hope, an, an aim for seeing also in the future uh, different approaches to agriculture. We have been often very linear in our thinking to produce crops. Often, as what you said, the larger is better, the bigger is better, the more is better, rather than looking at how how nature offers all these foodstuffs that we are dependent on, how we can do that in a more genteel way. I'm not saying crop reduction. I'm saying just simply a better approach and a better mechanism to use these resources that are available. Because with much of the agricultural activities and methodologies that are that have developed, um, uh, that is taxing the natural resources enormously. Um, and, and, and I, of course, don't want to criticize the farmers today, but I mean, I think it's worth our, much of our, uh, uh, management practices are actually 
consuming the principle of much of the resources that are there. And what I mean by that is that we take more out of the environment than than what comes back into the environment. Uh, If you grow a particular crop over and over and over again on the same plot of land, you're going to be depleting that soil. Okay. Uh, it is interesting that, uh, for example, in, 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 at the time when the settlers first came to the prairies, uh, that on average there was a depth of about three feet or almost, let's say, a meter of soil uh, that existed in the prairies. Okay. Now, today, on average, uh, that is less than uh, 30 centimeters. Okay. This is of grave concern because it means what is going to happen in the next 100 years. Um, when we have uh, uh, many of these humongous monocultural farm practices, uh, they may produce an awful lot. But the problem is, is that if you have one little bug that comes in there that loves to eat whatever that may be that crop is, um, and you don't control it, then your entire crop goes. So monocultural practices, as as economically interesting as they are, uh, do demand a great deal of inputs and controls to safeguard that crop from pests or from diseases or from whatever, okay? So our reliance then on pesticide usage, on fertilizer usage, and all kinds of other inputs rises hugely just because if we pursue this monocultural farm practice, Okay. So uh, I recall when I lived in Africa, in, in East Africa, visiting some subsistence farmers, people that had no nothing except a small plot of land, and that is the land on which they have to produce their food. They don't have money to buy food like what we do. They have to produce it themselves and eat. And if they fail to produce it, they go hungry. But I was just totally uh, amazed that here people followed traditions that have been developed over thousands of years, probably. The high degree of, uh, of, of multi-cropping or intercropping that they had. So they had a relatively small plot of land. And on this land, uh, right next to their hut, to their small little home, and they would have a ground cover consisting of beans and peas and things like this. Well, they're legumes, and these legumes, of course, enrich the soil. Then, as an intermediate height, they would have cassava bushes growing uh, that grow up to about a meter and a meter and a half. And then, as a shade, above that, they had uh, a plantain. They call that in East Africa, they call it a matoki. Uh, And and these are basically uh, uh, banana trees, okay? So, they had three layers of production going on on the same plot of land. Okay. Oh, and of course, on that forest floor or on that property, they have a whole bunch of chickens walking around as well that control insects and all kinds of other things. Uh, what I'm saying here is, is that they developed systems uh, that were kind of uh, environments that were basically uh, uh, sustaining themselves quite well without a great deal of input in terms of pesticides because the people, farmers wouldn't have the money to do that anyway. 
Now, I don't want to idealize this because uh, in Uganda particularly, you have fantastic growing conditions. I mean, it is this phenomenal climatically uh, beautiful area. Um, and not everybody in Africa is blessed with that kind of condition. Um, you have also in Africa a lot of areas where, you know, the crop is being eaten up by locusts or by other, uh, by molds. Uh, much of the crop is lost in storage because they don't have appropriate storage facilities. So, but uh, I'm only saying is that uh, with beekeeping, uh, the importance here is, is that beekeepers could try to uh, manage their colonies more harmonically and more effectively by if you can emulate and enhance the performance of bees at certain key times of the year, they have also greater resilience to fight various diseases and pests. And it is a question of understanding what is going on inside of that honeybee colony to make you a much better beekeeper. You get much greater results and much better results out of your bees than if you follow the, heart, the tradition of just putting a chemical in to control mites, for example, or a drug to control America Fowlbrut disease. It's one of these bacterial diseases that cause a lot of damage. Um, but if you kind of strategize it and if you are more uh, in tune with doing proper management of preventing diseases to develop and preventing parasitic mites to, to, to explode in your colony, uh, for that you need to, to be observant and to be in close connection with your bees. That is incredible. I'm, you're our provincial apiculturist, if I said that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, you play such an important role in how our environment works and keeping an eye on all these colonies across British Columbia. When when you decide to, you've been doing this for a very long time, when you decide um, to to take a break or to relax, um, when you decide, do you, Worry about who's going to take this over? Do you? Do you, really, you mean when I retire? That's a nice way of putting it. I, 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 I am trying okay. to say it politely, but um, <laughs> I'm just interested to know: is this something that, like, your perspective is widespread? Do you think that it's the dominant perspective to not use these chemicals? Um, I'm just the idea of not having you care about these bees. You seem to treat them with the utmost respect. Um, you talk about being in harmony with them. I just. The idea of you not being in this position um, freaks me out. Oh well, no. I, first, first of all, I mean, uh, I'm I'm not ir- irreplaceable. I am definitely irreplaceable uh, when it comes to that function, and and I'm sure that there are an awful lot of fantastically well trained and well versed people that uh, that would love to take over this position when I decide to retire. Uh, I, I think what is important to recognize that the, the, the philosophy behind it is something that I uh, don't have to try to convey to any of my uh, successors, uh, but more towards the beekeeping community that, uh, that are actively involved in bees. And, uh, if, uh, and again, this is not a critique on, on, on our uh, beekeepers in the United States, but in the United States, they have every year and very high colony losses, not just due to winter conditions, but throughout the season. And I think if I 
use this as a kind of a general observation is that with modern farming practices and 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 how we treat bees uh, they produce a, a large number of crops out there due to their favorable climatic conditions that uh, that are dependent on honeybee pollination and uh, and and the result of that is is that they truck these honeybee colonies all over the continent uh, from the east coast to the west coast and you know in almond production uh, pollination and then they drag them up out here to do pollination in blueberries and from there they go to the dakotas and they do canola and then they go down to texas for 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 for, for watermelon pollination or whatever the problem is, is that these colonies are basically spending much of their existence on the back of a truck well nature hasn't designed it that way and all these kind of manipulations and activities essentially constitute stresses, enormous stresses, that jeopardizes or challenges the survivability of these colonies. And if you have stresses applied to an organism, be that a bee colony or a cow or a goat or anything else, or humans for that matter, you become more susceptible to disease, in other words, you jeopardize one's health. And it is that drive for endless outputs coming from honeybees that I think we have reached in many of our practices the upper limits of what we can expect from bees in terms of their performance and their productivity and everything else. And it, is, uh, it behooves us to be uh, more respectful towards the honeybees and step back and say, how can we manage our colonies, our bees, in a manner where we are less abusive, less uh, 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 greedy in trying to always get more out of them than what they actually can, can do. You know, it's interesting that in my courses, uh, and the course that I teach right now, um, the first session, we talk about bees, of course, but the focus of it is, has little to do with the bees. It has to do with the with pollination and with the world around them, the flowering world around them. Because I like to emphasize over and over again that we can only expect something product-wise, uh, productivity-wise, but also survival-wise, health-wise from these bees only if they have an environment that offers them the food rewards and food resources on which they thrive. If that is void of those things, then what can we expect from them? They are not just simply sitting out there waiting for the, uh, uh, the immaculate d delivery of nectar or pollen sources. It doesn't work that way. They have to work for it to collect that, these two food sources. Nectar as a carbohydrate source, as a fuel in the tank, so to say, the energy source, and the pollen needed for the protein. That's the equivalency for uh, meat, for example. I mean, they, they get their protein from the pollen. If that is not available, then they cannot thrive. And often beekeepers are so focused on their bees that they are kind of blind of what the environment is doing or not doing. I start out with my course by saying, if you ever wish to or expect to be a good beekeeper, you have to be a gardener. You have to be an horticulturalist, if you will, to be aware of what the environment can offer the bees to thrive, okay? 
And and so there is again this interconnectedness that beekeepers, beekeepers, and in many other agricultural pursuits as well, but they find just limited to to bees. Uh, they have to have it's the phrase I hate because it is often different meanings are applied to it, but they must have, so we say, a holistic approach to it. They cannot just look at the bees by themselves. They have to see it within the context of how bees thrive or how they function in the environment in which they are operating. There are a lot of parallels to that when you think of people, because right now we're having this conversation of what is a meaningful life? Are you going to find that in your your legal career? Are you going to find that in your work? Um, you need to be able to go home to a loving family. You need to be able to have the other things outside of your career that are going to sustain you, that are going to make it okay for you to go to work, going to make it worthwhile. It's not just about the money. And often uh, the, the people we think of are the people who are making the most amount of money. And it's like, oh, the goal is to be the most productive and make the most amount of money. And it, there's parallels to that, to bees and saying, um, and there's just something about people, I think, that when you say, oh, you did this well, there's an instinct to be like, well, why can't I just make it 85% more, 90%? Why can't we get a hundred? Like, there's this instinct to never feel satisfied, to mm. never just go, That's right. I did a good year. I That's worked right. hard. I didn't make a million dollars this year. Year, but I did good work that I'm proud of, and that's mm-hmm. that's okay. And we always have this instinct of like, well, why couldn't I have made a little bit more? And, and maybe I could have gone in an extra vacation, and maybe I could have bought an, another house, and maybe I could have done all these more things. And we're just there's this inclination not to just be satisfied with what, what you, you did have. and what you have. And it sounds like having a more quality bee life is far better overall, long term. And when you talked about monoculture, it's like it's not that you're getting the best yield because you're, you are paying a price in the future. You just don't get to see what that's going to cost you because in 10 years, your, your, your output's going to be worse. So you're basically taking from the future in order to get more now. And um, when you think of people who are really good at investing their money and being strategic, they know that they're going to bring some money in, but they're going to invest it. And then they're going to have more in five years. And the strategy seems the reverse when we talk about monoculture because we're saying, oh, well, we'll just take from the next 100 years so that we can have the best yield this year and you are paying a price you Mm -hmm. just don't get to see it yet but the bill will come due and it sounds like you're saying that in in the prairies that bill is eventually going to come due and we're going to have to adapt and figure out different approaches because we have been purchasing from the future and it's just you don't get to see it the same way that you see it uh, in a year bill where you have your purchases and your outgoing expenses but that would be terrifying as a farmer to think I bought this nice piece of land I I've been using it for 10 years, but in the next 20 years, maybe it'll be useless to me. Maybe it'll be like sand where I can't get anything out of it. And now you just own a piece of land that nobody wants. That's far worse than having that more balanced approach where you were just describing in uh, Uganda, Um, perhaps not going 100% that way, but working towards that sustainability where we can have good things now, good things tomorrow, good things in 10 years. And there's this idea in indigenous culture of seven generations um, where you look back seven generations previous and you think about your your 
parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and what did they do? And what were their hopes and dreams for their children and grandchildren? Mm -hmm. And then you're supposed to look seven generations into the future. Uh, what are you leaving behind for your children, your grandchildren? And if you're leaving behind useless plot of land that you can't grow anything on because you were so focused. Greedy. Yeah, you were greedy in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's what we're struggling with right now. That's what mm -hmm. it feels like a lot of people are struggling with is um, there's a sense of, as I said, anxiety and depression. But it's, yes. I think that that's a consequence of looking too much at yourself and yes. going, where do I want to be? What do I want for my life? And it's like, mm -hmm. what happened to wanting the best for your kids? What happened to wanting the best for the next generation? Why is it about you? Why is it about the things you're facing? Um, because when you're a part of these ecosystems, whether it's with bees, whether it's with birds, whether it's with plants, you start to recognize that you're just one little piece of this giant machine, puzzle. this yes. puzzle. Um, probably machine isn't the right word um, because you're just a, a participant. And it's, it's again, a privilege to participate. It's an yes. honor to, I'm sure when you get to see these bees working, it's, it's something different. It's like artwork when you get to see them flying around and doing their thing and not caring about who you are and what you're thinking. Um, there's a sense of connection that you start to develop. And I think that we're so lucky when people like you are willing to share that because that's not something you see in the news. That's not something you see when we're talking about conflicts in the world. Uh, we're not talking about how connected we are. You talked about in one of uh, the stories that was written about you about how you got started in this when you were, I think, eight years old in your grade three class. Um, can you tell us about how you got interested in bees? Um, where did that connection start for you? Oh, well, uh, it's, yeah, what you just said. I mean, uh, you know, it was getting close to the summer holidays and the teacher having trouble to fill the time and with a bunch of unruly boys because it was a boys' school, elementary boys' school. And, um, yeah, we dra were dragged out to the local beekeeper, to a local beekeeper. Uh, and I still remember the gentleman, uh, well-retired lawyer at that time, um, and I remember, you know, 20 little unruly boys of all in that same age group of about, yeah, seven, eight, somewhere in there, nine, somewhere in there. Beautiful, sunny after sunny, warm afternoon. And I recall they had two hives. And Mr. Honest was his name. Mr. Honest opened up these hives. And I remember that uh, he was talking about it, and we were all in a big circle around these two colonies. And I recall seeing all these bees on the top of the frames just walking. And, and uh, just, I still remember it as if it happened yesterday. Uh, of course, the first thing that you think of from, dear Lord, each and every one of those bees can sting me. So you first had this kind of instinct, a fear factor. But when we look closely at it, and Mr. Honest was very quiet and he was doing his thing, it became quite evident that these bees were truly ignoring us. Even though there were 20 little unruly boys out there, um, the bees had no interest. They were just minding their own business. And apparently it had such an enormous impact uh, in my mind that, according to my parents, I talked about it for weeks on end, that how fantastic it was that I had seen these bees. And so that eventually resulted in me taking an, an, an introductory course with an, 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 another beekeeper in the area. And uh, it didn't take long, and I had my first two colonies in the backyard. And uh, um, I enjoyed that quite immensely. Um, and I still 
I would have never guessed that I would end up, you know, being involved in bees for the rest of my working life. But um, it is something that is extraordinarily gratifying and, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, it creates a sense of peace and harmony that is rare. And the fact that, uh, you know, I don't look down or criticize anyone with other possession, uh, uh, professions. It's just simply, it, it, uh, uh, these has always uh, they have always offered an, an enormous amount of gratification um, and I will probably never lose that that's incredible so that happened in Holland and then it sounds like you came here uh, to British Columbia for school uh, yeah. what went into that decision what made you um, oh very simple I mean I originally I had to plan to uh, to study forestry but um, Again, I, I curtail my critique, but the point is, is that I became somewhat, uh, uh, less enthused about forestry because of some of the clear cut practices that they had at the time. Um, I, I just didn't feel very connected or happy or comfortable with uh, uh, the practices that took place. And I, I actually, uh, <laughs> I enjoyed <laughs> student life. So I, I studied political science, uh, which I thought was fascinating uh, for a few years, uh, read material that I would have never bothered to read myself, was it not because of the guidance that profs uh, offered in, in, in that field, uh, political philosophy, things of this kind. And then eventually, of course, I knew very well that I would not uh, gain any serious employment within the field of political science. So I, uh, uh, I studied agricultural sciences with an emphasis on, on entomology. And, uh, and that uh, was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. And uh, then I eventually was uh, 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 offered a an, an, an wonderful position with, uh, the, at the Beaver Lodge Research Station up in the Peace River in Alberta, where I worked for several years in a large bee breeding program. Um, One of the biggest, if I'm not mistaken, right? Time, yeah, uh, it was an it was a large program uh, to uh, build a better bee, if you will, for Alberta. Alberta was flush with money at the time, uh, and apparently it is there again. But anyway, um, that's a different thing. Uh, so uh, it was it was it was really gratifying to do this, and then out of the blue came this opportunity to manage an. Um, a bee uh, development project, an apicultural project in Uganda under the auspices of CARE International. And CARE is a very large, uh, originally American-based organization, um, of, um, uh, which has three different divisions, if you will. One of them is medical assistance, that is a particular division, and another one is acute uh, food aid that is often very short-term in and emergency situations and then you have the a much larger division which deals with agricultural development uh, whereby specialists are sent to whatever number of countries uh, to be there to to run uh, um, projects of various kinds uh, well in my case then about bees for several years to try to assist in the development of uh, of beekeeping beekeeping of course was done in east africa for thousands of years uh, but um uh, that was often not very what we would call not very well managed it was very much more of a raiding process you know a, a nest somewhere and they would basically destroy the nest in order to gain 
honey, uh, uh, by uh, developing management programs or actual management that would retain the colony. You don't have to kill the colony, and you could get some honey out of out of out of these uh, out of these colonies. That was one thing. The other thing, what made beekeeping so attractive uh, as we talked earlier about intercropping on subsistence farmers on small little plots of land much of the land ownership in many of these countries is very traditional and long long held i mean they have had generations and generations of people living on that particular plot Um, it is also dictated by certain tribal uh, uh, traditions and things so uh, sometimes we, when we come in, we collectively from the f- f- from Europe or from North America and want to create these development projects. We come with our con- we come with our concepts, and therefore we say, oh, well, you know what? Uh, we have to clear the land and so many acres of this and that to make it worthwhile to sell our <laughs> uh, Massey Ferguson Canadian built tractors to to do it more efficiently. But then often the result of that is that you uh, eventually end up with the displacement of a great number of people that have lived on these lands for a long time. And you get all kinds of strife of land ownership and, and things of that kind. Bees, on the other hand, give this extraordinary opportunity of, for subsistence farmers to stay on the land but to just merely, without alteration of the ownership of the land, to add some level of productivity to it in the form of honey that they, or wax that they can then sell for, to supplement their very meager incomes and their existence. So uh, it doesn't change the, har- the, the existing setup, if you will, local setup. So it is less of an intrusive form of agricultural assistance compared to uh, saying, oh, we have to get, you know, everybody off the land and then we can grow all the bananas or we can grow the coffee plantation or whatever. Uh, so, um, and, and and I think that that, excuse me, lent itself superbly for, for, for this kind of development. Um, wow, that is absolutely incredible. You talked also about how there's kind of two different paths with uh, the road that you chose. One is pest control. The other is supporting bees and bringing life to that. Can you tell us more about that decision um, and realizing that there's a way for sort of that holistic, perhaps where everything can thrive versus choosing this, we need to, like, it's, it almost seems like choosing pest yeah. control in that mindset is very pessimistic. It's looking again at, at life as something to be controlled, killed, destroyed, bring in pesticides, let's just knock them out. Um, approaching it in that way, it seems like that would le- lead to a less fulfilled person because they view it as their role as there's a bunch of nails and I'm a hammer and I need to go find the nails to go take care of these things. Whereas with you, it's like, how do we make sure uh, the life is full, that these are operating at the best capabilities? It seems like a more optimistic, perhaps, um, path to choose. Well, of course, uh, I, I should should point out though that my position with the Ministry of Agriculture is 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 uh, you know I run the bee program for the ministry, but the legal mandate, the legislated mandate that we have, is to address bee health. So we have pieces of legislation uh, that that gives us, so to say, legal legitimacy of the stuff that we are doing, but. 
and 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 I should also mention that about thirty or forty years ago, beekeeping was an 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 an, an a fringe agricultural uh, uh, activity. I mean, there were very few diseases. There were virtually no pests. Bees were just largely looking after themselves. Beekeepers were kind of, you know, it was a nice side activity to, let's say, their fruit producers, uh, producing activities or something else. But um, everything was much simpler. But it was really the, 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 I think the critical change came, uh, and if you can call it, beekeeping lost its innocence in 1990 when the varroa mite was introduced to beekeeping. The varroa mite, uh, I don't want to go into a long detail, but it is a highly damaging parasitic mite uh, that is in an, an, um, it lives on the outside of the bees, and it uh, kills bees, both the brood as well as adult bees. And if you do not deal with the mite situation, the bees will die. Uh, it's a question of for how long does it take for the pollen for the for the colony to die. But with the varroa mite introduction, there are other diseases coming along with it as well, and a number of them are viral diseases. Okay, so my program uh, uh, deals with trying to control or prevent the introduction of or reduce the spread of and mitigate the impact of all these pathogens okay so that has that is the 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 that's the the framework under which we have to ask beekeepers to 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 try to deal with these diseases and pests now the problem is is that traditional or what it has become with many of the agricultural uh, activities. Oh, we have a disease or we have a problem with these mites. What we do is we put a chemical in to control these mites. Okay. And it is a simplistic approach, you might say. And, and, and as a result, uh, because it is on the label, it says, you know, one's in the spring, one's in the summer, and one's in the winter, for example, whatever the application is. Okay. And it is a kind of a cookie cutter design, okay, based on a calendar. But bees are far more complicated than that. And so are mites. There is a dynamic interaction taking place between the mite population and the bee population. And in order to say from, well, I'm not going to continuously depend just on a lousy chemical to put into the hive. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure what the bees, what the population of these mites do. And as, as long as they are below a certain level, I don't worry about it, okay? If they are reaching a level that is a bit too high, then, and only then, will I apply a control product, okay? So what you're dealing with is a more sophisticated approach. And what we call that, not just in honeybees, but in any crop development, we call that integrated pest management, IPM. So I live in Delta, and there is a whole bunch of fields out there. They grow a lot of spuds. Lots of potatoes, okay? Now, in the past, you would have the farmer going out there with two booms on the side of the tractor, spraying the hell out of the, out of the crop regularly, okay? They don't do that anymore, okay? So what do they do? Now they hire some underpaid students, perhaps, I don't know, uh, students in the summer who have a sweep uh, net, and they have a certain plot, 
where they go, so many rows down and so many rows up and whatever. And here they have a certain quadrant that they sweep. And they put their head inside of the sweep net. And then they count the total number of pest animals versus uh, predatory insects. Okay, So the predatory insects are there to, ki- to eat the pest insect. Okay? And it is only when that ratio is becoming problematic. So if you have no more predators, but only these pests, then clearly the predators can no longer look after the problem. So, and only then you would spray. Okay. So this is a very uh, carefully administered, strategically administered control product. The same we should apply to how we manage our bees. Now, the problem with that one is, is it needs knowledge. You need education, you need training, and frequent monitoring. So integrated pest management is often a misconceived uh, idea. A lot of people think, oh, that is a holistic way of of running organic bees or something, or back-to-nature bees. Nonsense. It is basically a strategically uh, well-detailed technique to apply controls only when needed under the circumstances that you have collected facts and figures that say you better treat okay um the result of that is is that allows you to reduce your usage and dependency on drugs and on chemicals and again this is not unique to bees this is can be to all kinds of other crop or or Uh, livestock production systems uh, where uh, maybe the use of chemicals and drugs cannot be totally eliminated but largely eliminated okay now the problem that we have with furrow mites i'm the first one to admit it is its virulence its disease causing or damage causing effect is so high that our tolerance level our tolerance to allow it to be in our colonies is very, very low, okay? We become worried when we have, for example, intoler- if we have a 3% infestation in our honeybee colonies with Faroa mites, if it is above it, well, we better treat. If we allow it to get too high, then we lose the bees altogether, okay? So monitoring, uh, being engaged and learning and reading what's going on inside of that colony is a key component of uh, uh, operating or managing honeybee colonies successfully with minimal, but not completely without, with, with minimal usage of those control products that help us to, 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 to see the bees survive. There are also people naively and I hear of them all the time, who want to get into the bees and say, oh, but I'm only interested in natural beekeeping. They don't know what that means, but it sounds good, okay? And they often basically um, uh, run the bees in a manner which I can only describe as being one of neglect, Okay, it's like the bees develop a disease. They don't monitor it often enough. They don't look after it enough. And they deny these bees the benefit of receiving a medicine. 
in whatever form that right. is, is. And the result of it is, is that the bees will die. But the problem with that one is, is that the bees don't die just from one day to the next. They, that poor colony is generally going through a protracted period of decline, of suffering. And bees, although as individualistic beekeepers are, because they, if you, you go to a beekeepers meeting, you'll see how many different opinions you have. If you have 10 beekeepers, you guarantee you end up with 11 opinions. Okay. <laughs> so ironically, as individualistic as beekeepers are, they deal with a unique form of livestock that is more communal, more sharing than you could ever think of. So if you have one colony with a disease or with a serious health problem, guess what? The colony next to it is going to have the same thing. Not right away, but over time. And another apiary. And another apiary of another beekeeper. Yeah. So if you have people that go into natural beekeeping, <laughs> okay, guess what happens? They are basically, and there you have these colonies suffering painfully, going through declines. Many of the bees at one point say, hey, there is no hope out here. I'm going to move to another colony. Okay, and because they share their misery with each other, essentially, and that means you spread diseases, bring them to other colonies, to other beekeepers, and so on. And that is why, through education, we try to reduce that and say, I'm very blunt in my courses as well to say, beekeepers, aspiring beekeepers, please learn from what I'm telling you in this course. If you realize that this way too much work, if you cannot commit yourself to looking after this unique livestock, don't bother. Don't, don't do it to the bees. Okay. Uh, there are other bees beekeeper people can have. One of them is these non-honey bees called the osmia bees or the blue orchard mason bees. They don't have communal nests. They are just individual females that will provision a little tubular nest and, uh, and and you have fantastic beautiful little honeybee or not honeybees uh, bees that come out between March and June and they pollinate everything you can pollinate and then they disappear for the rest of the year so there's no maintenance there's no uh, lots of work involved and I encourage people to consider that if if they don't have the 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 drive and the commitment to look after honeybee colonies. Right. What you talked about in terms of maintenance and monitoring things, it made me think of alcohol. And it might be a crude example, but I think of how certain communities, particularly First Nations communities, we have high alcohol rates, and that does a disservice to the community um, in a variety oh, of ways. Yes. yes. And so you can think um, that perhaps we... and. Um, people might not know this, but 50% of crimes have alcohol involved in them in some way or another. And um, it's it's curious. I had a John Hyde on, who's a professor at UFE, and we talk about how alcohol really does just get a pass. We don't think about um, the ramifications that for one person, having a little bit of that mite or something, you can it can be okay. You can have it with dinner and you're fine. But for the next person, it can become a deteriorating. Yes. Yeah, it can have a lot of different effects on you and then you carry that over to your community and you start getting more depressed, you start getting worse sleeps because alcohol impacts your sleep and then you start treating people badly and then you start pushing this on to other people and you start wanting to go 
to the bars more and you want to it's, it's yes. help it's helping you cope and so it just it made me think of that struggle of like where do we put that line where is the limit for something like alcohol where's the limit for might and thinking of these things in your own life and understanding that there is a threshold where yes alcohol can be harmless or might can cannot cause damage but you increase that threshold too much it can start to have deleterious effects on the things around it on the people Absolutely. or the bees um, and I think it's interesting that you made that comment about this this culture we have right now of all natural non-gmo like uh when you think of um dogs all dogs are genetically modified in that (laughs) we've modified them over uh times of of, um having different dogs and having them mate and then having saying these are like purebreds but they're not really pure in the sense that they all came from wolves and if your dog isn't a wolf then it's no longer pure of what it used to be and so we have this culture right now of uh non-gmo and another good example i think are apples no apples are what they were um when apples existed a thousand years ago 2000 years ago we've adapted them when you think of granny smith apples and all these different ones they're all adapted over time it's not through perhaps chemical engineering the way we think of it in a laboratory but it's through chemical engineering of having certain species of apples mix and then and then we like that flavor and then we purchase more of that flavor and so things adapt over time and we've genetically engineered them through just mating of them and having yeah. different selection d- exactly yeah. and so yeah. Yeah. we have this weird mentality right now of thinking that we're going to go back to 10,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago and that this is how it was done pre-contact and so that's somehow better and I see that um, and I've mentioned this a few times I see it with the vegan and vegetarian community and there's nothing lo- wrong with choosing that lifestyle but um, Christian religions dealt with the guilt and the weight of killing animals killing life so they can live through things like grace through giving thanks to a creator a god um, indigenous people we have salmon ceremonies so we take that salmon um, we share it with the first salmon with the whole community we return the bones to the river we give thanks for that um, we do a prayer um, and then we all take on a collective responsibility that if we're going to kill this if we're going to do this then we have a responsibility to the ecosystem to take care of it to be stewards of it that there's a role to play and it seems mm-hmm. short-sighted when I hear parts of the vegan and vegetarian community say, well, I'm just not going to eat this anymore because I'm a good person and nothing should have to die for me to live. And it's like, I under- I sympathize, but I think that cultures have figured out a way to um, do this, but in a, in a sustainable way where we go forward in better directions. And I think when we start to forget why people do grace, when we start to think, oh, this is a silly superstition of giving thanks, you start to miss out on the reason why is so that you remember what your role is. You remember your responsibilities. You are grateful for the life around you. And that doesn't require you necessarily believe in a creator. Um, It matters that you understand your role as a human today. Um, I think that there can be added benefits to believing that there's a creator perhaps, but it's not like the barrier of entry is to believe that in order to see the value in grace and to see the value in salmon ceremonies. And I think that uh, it's it's important that we recognize our role in these ecosystems. And it sounds like those individuals who have that kind of mindset of like, well, I'm not going to do anything and that's going to be natural is not uh, humans have existed for, for a very long time and we've played a role in these ecosystems. And it would be hoove of us to take on that responsibility and do it in the way that you're sort of describing. Yes. No, yeah. It's, it's very true. Yeah. It's, um, but, um, 
hopefully that uh, the diseases will remain uh, manageable. The, pro- the problem is that a lot of people have uh, an, an, an overly simplistic idea approach to uh, the complexity of how to maintain and manage, for example, these honeybee colonies. You can actually and, just pull that up if you want to sit back and... And, and well, well, the, yeah, the, 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 uh, uh, and, and in the courses, we try to continuously say, look, you have to become far more focused on, again, what I said from the beginning, being communal with the bees so that you get a closer uh, feel for what it is, for what is happening. Um, uh, And and, and our, uh, when we talked earlier about monocultural practices, uh, I give you an example. Uh, We have uh, uh, a lot of crop growers, particularly in blueberries, uh, that have difficulty to secure enough honeybee colonies for for looking after their pollination needs in their crop, um, because we don't have enough honeybee colonies in the province. So we get bees also from the prairie provinces to winter out here because of favorable climatic conditions, and then in the springtime, some of those are used for pollination contracts in the Fraser Valley for blueberries. And even then, often there is a shortage of it. But I have said for, been trying to convince big, uh, uh, growers for years, I said, hey, look, don't just rely on honeybees, but also use other pollinators, natural pollinators. These are gifts of nature. And how can you get those? Well, if we step back and we realize that the, in the evolution of blueberries and cranberries, they evolved over millions of years in bog environments of the northern hemisphere, in the temperate zones. Wet, soggy, uh, often lousy weather conditions, and there they are, the blueberries in bloom, or the, the cranberries in bloom. So who are the pollinators? Typically, bumblebees. Okay. Big, hairy, fluffy balls. Okay. But so if we look at what bumblebees do, they buzz. They buzz more than just making that sound. What they do is they go into a flower. They are heavy insects, so they grasp that flower on the inside, and they have a very long tongue, or a proboscis, they call it. And they grasp this flower and put their head inside of this narrow flower to gain access to the nectaries, the nectar that is in the bottom of the tubular flower, and they have to bypass, of course, the pollen grains that are sitting out there on the anthers, okay? But not only that, in that wet, cold environment, the the pollen is very sticky and doesn't dislodge very readily. Now, the fact is, is that these bumblebees have evolved to buzz, and what that means is that they, while they are on the flower, they relax and or contract and relax their flight muscles without moving their wings. So the whole insect vibrates like this, and that extremely high vibration causes the pollen grains to dislodge and get stuck on the hairs. Now, it happens to be also that because they're so hairy and big, when the wings go through the wet and humid air at a very rapid pace, they also build up static electricity. So when they are onto the flower, the different 
uh, uh, charge, the, the static electric charge that they carry is different from the flower, and that causes the pollen grains to stick to the hairs even more. Okay, so all that I'm saying is that bumblebee, honeybees don't do that. They don't. They also build up some static electricity uh, charge, electrical charge, but they don't buzz. They 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 have not learned to do that. So, in other words, on a per insect basis, bumblebees are far more effective in pollinating, more efficient, if you will, pollinating blueberries and cranberries than honeybees. Okay, they also are tolerant to to forage under weather conditions that most honeybees say, forget it, I'm going to stay home. I'm not going to fly around in this weather, okay? Because they have evolved largely in warmer climates, Mediterranean climates and, and subtropical climates, honeybees. But bumblebees are very tolerant to these much lower and miserable conditions. So why not use more bumblebees, okay? So I recall now, 20, almost 20 years ago, that I got a very nice uh, study uh, 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 grant from the BC Blueberry Growers Organization to do research on uh, how can we enhance bumblebee pol- populations in blueberries. And uh, what I thought was so remarkable, or uh, I got great gratification out of this, that we hardly spent any money and we already came very quickly to the conclusion what the reasons were or what the principal reasons uh, ought to be for them to enhance their populations. Because it was always argued that uh, uh, the, the, the biggest problem was not a sufficient undisturbed habitat, not enough wild undisturbed habitat where they can have their little nests in the ground. Okay, bumblebees do that in the ground their nests. That was not the shortage at all. What was the shortage? The shortage was, again, we were talking about monocultural practices before. When blueberries come into flower for three weeks, four weeks in April, okay, there is, for the bumblebees, there is feast. There is an enormous amount of food available, unlimited amount of food. They can never keep up with it, so much food there is. So they are very busy doing that. But their reproductive stage, it is an annual nest. It is not, bumblebees only are active as a nest for the summer season. And then the nest collapses and dies out and only the mated females, the queens, will winter on their own to start their own nest in the following year. So their reproductive stage is something similar to what I was explaining about the Asian giant hornet. Uh, so they has, the nest will start to produce reproductives in late summer, in August. So from, from early on in the spring all the way up to that late summer, this nest must have access to food to get larger. Okay, And so after the blueberries have flowered, then often with monocultural practices, these bumblebees have no food for months or hardly any food, so they struggle. Now, the difference is, I don't want to go into endless detail, but honeybees are long-distance foragers. And the reason is, is that they are sophisticated enough in the evolutionary ladder uh, 
that they can communicate with each other inside of the nest, inside of the hive. They have a special dance and they have a certain way to communicate with each other to say, hey, if you fly out of the hive, you have to fly in this particular direction and it costs you so much energy to get to the food source. Okay, so they don't have to search all over the place. Okay, you're blowing my mind. They have that's a dance they, that they do that's in the right. hive. That's yeah, that's right. So honeybees do. Okay, okay? Um, uh, um, while bumblebees have not evolved enough on the evolutionary <laughs> path to develop such a communication form within the nest, so all the sisters, because these are all these worker bumblebees just come out and they basically forage on their own. Now, they cannot afford to fly three kilometers in a certain direction because they may not find anything. Okay, So they are relatively short distance flyers, f short distance foragers. So if you are in a monocultural setting, you may have a fantastic start to the season, but then after that blueberry flower is gone, yeah, the next food source may be the blackberries, but if the blackberries are two kilometers away, that is an awful lot of hard work, and only a few out of this entire nest will ever find these blue blackberries to feast and, and to bring food back. So, in other words, the momentum of nest development is stagnating. And therefore, maybe by the end, in August, when finally the nest is ready to produce the reproductive stages, it may be such a small nest that it will never really produce many of those uh, sexually maturing offspring. Okay, So it is key then for helping these bumblebee populations locally to set a dinner table for them now, after the blueberries have flowered. So in our research study, what we said to the beekeepers was, or to the growers, it's very simple. We said, you know, if you want to have more bumblebees in your field or near your field, why don't you sacrifice a little bit of the, the ribbon, the, the edge of your field, and plant a number of flower, uh, 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 food sources that we can recommend. And there are a variety of floral sources from catmint to bee balm to a whole bunch of things that are flowering throughout the summer season and that help these small little bumblebee nests that I may be in the wild somewhere to enhance in their in their reproductive success. Okay. Unfortunately, at that time, you're talking about 20 years ago, a lot of the growers would say, "What? Me sacrificing a ribbon of land for these for these bumblebees? Psh, I can plant 10 bushes that cost me that you know that offer me income." To put in a garden for for, for, for pollinators, you got to be kidding. I might as well just rent more honeybee colonies. Do you know what I mean? That seems crazy to me. That seems well, so short-sighted. And they paid you to do the research, and then your research comes back with... They didn't expect what the, what the results were, but the results were remarkably simple. Okay? And today we are again talking with the blueberry growers to do exactly that. It's, by the way, it is not exclusive to blueberry growers, but, you know, to many other crop growers as well. What I'm trying to... The message out here is this, that with a little bit of input effort, we can take advantage of a natural resource, being the bumblebee population in a local environment, to enhance it 
not to abuse it, just merely to popularize it, to, to give it strength and vitality and greater success in its presence in the local habitat, in the local environment, that then can assist us of setting a better crop uh, fruit set in the crop that we are growing. Okay, And again, the blueberry growers are looking into that seriously now again, and, and I'm in similar negotiations with the cranberry growers because they have the same problem. Okay. Uh, bubble honeybees are forced to go onto cranberries, but the honeybees don't like it at all because it doesn't produce any nectar. It only produces a little bit of pollen. Well, these girls are saying, I, I, I rather fly to something else with greater productivity. So the reliance on bumblebees is even greater in cranberries when it comes to pollination. And so there again, too, steps can be taken, relatively simple, uh, sustainable steps to enhance local resources, local bee populations. Uh, in a very simple, simple, and, 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 and uh, in a way that, and by, by the way, of course, when we promote the planting of some of these floral sources, you cannot expect one year to suddenly have been, the environment is not inundated with all these fantastic uh, uh, bumblebees or other species. This will take a few years for build up, so to say. Yeah. Okay. But it is a management approach that is, if you talk about holistic approach, it is far more in tune with the environment, with what the environment offers. There is one more thing that I like to add, uh, uh, not to endlessly criticize monocultural practices, but studies have shown that if you have a plot of land and you put in a thousand honeybees, that you have, let's say, hive with, a, let's say, a, a thousand honeybees that pollinate, okay, in that particular crop, you have a certain success of fruit set, okay. If you reduce that uh, that population of a thousand, you reduce that somewhat, and you the difference you make up with, let's say, bumblebees, so that you would have the same number of pollinating insects, but of different composition, you have better fruit set. In other words, uh, why that is, we don't know exactly, and I certainly don't, because I haven't done that research, but the thing is, studies have shown that basically greater biodiversity, greater species diversity of the pollinator fauna in a given area provides greater seed set and fruit set than if you have only a single pollinator in an environment. And that brings me to a last point, and it is this, that what we have seen in the world of bees, pollinators in general, you know, it's interesting, a lot of people are surprised to learn that we are currently operating more honeybee colonies in Canada than ever before, more than ever. But what is the difference compared to 50 years ago? Honeybee colonies currently have a surface life that is far shorter than what it used to be 50 years ago. In other words, we have to go through a replacement program of much greater frequency than what we employed 50 years ago. And that costs money. In other words, the productivity niveau of each honeybee colony 
is lower today than what it was many years ago. Okay. So yes, we operate more of them, but less successfully, if you will. Right. Okay. And that is one of the reasons why there are more colonies, not only because there are more people interested in keeping bees, but also many of the commercial beekeepers in order to compensate for or address that lower productivity level, what they do is they start to apply what we call the economies of scale. Instead of running 3,000 colonies, now you have to run 5,000, right? So, so that is, that is an, uh, an important part in, 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 our, uh, in, the, in, the, in the management cycle that has been taking place in the honeybee business, if you will. Okay. And we can uh, uh, go back and try to reduce that again by basically trying to uh, basically manage these colonies better so that they retain higher or high productivity levels. Okay. That is a lot. Um, I think that it's so valuable. Like talking to individuals like yourself, it's so humbling because you realize just how much you don't know about a topic, and you you it, it humbles you. And and it's part of the reason I love doing this is because I learn so much. And I think that there's one thing that you've pointed out here several times, whether it's in monoculture, whether it's through natural beekeeping, whether or not it's through our instinct to want to use pharmaceuticals to address things, is this this small minded approach to things, and you kind of described it again when you were talking about this instinct well i could just bring in more bees or i could just pay for more and there's this this short-sightedness that people can have when they're just looking for productivity and it sounds like if we were more strategic if we humbled ourselves in so many of these industries and said how do we make sure that this is going to be here for the long haul? How do we make sure that these bees are successful? Because they're on my team. And you think of this, there's a small movement growing of treating your employees better. And the bees are on your team. They're working with you. And they don't get paid the way that you're paying your staff, but they're on your team and you rely on them. Mm. And so how about you treat your team better? How about you have this mindset exactly. of investing long term, just like you do with your employees, if you give them health care benefits or if you invest in their education, how about you invest in your team so they're here for the long haul so you can be not and like that's where there's these challenges of like once you like it almost sounds like you need like a campaign of like we treat our bees well or something to get people thinking about these things of like are you because we have this movement of not using too much um, like pesticides and stuff and people are starting to go okay I don't want a lot of pesticides I shop at the town butcher here in Chilliwack and they try not to use antibiotics on their meat and it sounds like it would be uh, useful and I don't always know exactly how effective the campaigns are but to have um, like I just interviewed man farms here and I know they have blueberries raspberries and they're doing mm. all types of wine That's and right. so when you're talking about this I had them in my mind of like um, could there be a business opportunity for them to say we treat our bees well or we have like a bee aspect to our business where we're we're trying to make sure that these bees are not only here but they're here long term and that their quality of life is improving so we have statistics on that so that we can be proud because from my understanding the Fraser Valley is one of the most full areas of bees um, I think that that's correct and so there would and it sounds like there's individuals who care about the bees and want oh, yeah. the best for them and so there has 
has to be something we can do to motivate these businesses to say, well, because you have to, unfortunately, incentivize businesses to to consider these things. And if there's no incentive for them to put a big brand on their wall that has a bee on it that says we treat our bees well, then they don't really care because it's not on their consumer's yeah, radar. That's right. And that's sort of frustrating because there's no uh, incentive to themselves to just be good stewards of the land. But if we can put in these incentives for them to say, oh, it's worthwhile because then my customers are proud to buy my product. I got that little bee sticker on it. And I've kind of talked smack about the sticker industry because you think of like green products. So many products say they're green and they're they're not green no. or they've met a minimum requirement. It's same with recycled. We use 10% recycled products. And if that, if yeah. that, and then yeah. they say it and then they have like, a, they can do up to 2% of recycled products in order to say that. And so there's all these challenges with that. But you've pointed out this small-minded approach to so many different aspects that I think it's so... It's so nice to hear somebody saying, like, look at it from all these different perspectives. And then you're right. You might not improve the first year or year two or year three. But over the longevity of your business, and hopefully you're a farmer for 20, 50, 100 years and you pass this business on to your family, that you've got a plan. And the reason I thought of man farms is because they're a generational farm. So they're passing this on to their children and their grandchildren mm-hmm. and their family. Mm-hmm. And so it's if you're if that's your plan, then you need to have a plan to have the crops work and that's have right. all these things function. And and there's something um, – we have another place here in Chilliwack that's an egg um, business, and they're like fourth-generational oh, yeah. egg farmers. And so there's this passing on of the torch, and how can we do things better? And it sounds like that's something that you really motivate. Can you tell us about this course that you provide people and um, what the different stages are? I, I think you have four, um, and, and what you what well, you talk about. Yeah, well, well basically uh, – uh, uh, as I said earlier, uh, when the Varroa mites came in in 1987 in North America and the subsequent misery that was brought about, um, we, uh, we 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 started to emphasize even more so than before uh, to to offer beekeepers training. Uh, how to become a better beekeeper. And most of that activity was at the time in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, you know, these were seminars. And, and you know, you, f- you show up at a, at a local beekeeping club and you tell about this or that or whatever. Or you wrote articles in some of the magazines that they had. And that was all fine. But when it became a far more challenging enterprise, we started to uh, th- uh, organize specific courses. And, and we call it then the introduction to beekeeping. It was maybe an introduction, but much of it was often also directed to beekeepers that already had quite a bit of years of experience. The drawback of these courses were that not only were they uh, bringing a certain cost with them because we had to rental, uh, you know, arrange with local colleges, for example, to have a, a classroom available. It's always in the evening because in the daytime people had to work. Um, and of course, a classroom only can accommodate maybe thirty people, and 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 the driving at night and all this stuff were all these limitations uh, that uh, were okay, except that you know who could you reach? Well, typically people that in 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 the Fraser Valley, uh, or a course that we had then in the Okanagan, or a course on south uh, on Vancouver Island. The problem was is that it was very limiting because of the the physical distances, the, the, the fact that people had to show up at classroom settings and whatever. Uh, and therefore, uh, we didn't reach as many people as we could. 
So that is why in 2015, which is now seven years ago, well before we even ever thought about COVID-19, the technology started to pop up more and more about having the opportunity of webinars online, live webinars. And so uh, I uh, approached my uh, the executive in, in the ministry saying, would this be possible to do that I organize and develop a course, an online course, and that would then be comprised of four classes once every week, uh, sorry, yeah, once a week, and preferably on a Saturday morning. Uh, because then most people don't have to work, and it is then for two hours or two and a half hours each Saturday. And the whole idea was not to charge anything. The idea was free, so that there was no uh, monetary impediment, you know, to to actually reach out to people. Because I felt, you know, people that live in Prince George or in, well, I don't know, in Telegraph Creek or in... Dawson City, or Dawson Creek, or in Northern BC, wherever, they should have the the opportunity to have some educational opportunities equal to that of be, uh, people that live in the Fraser Valley. Why would that be any different? The technology was enabling us to do this. So uh, I got the approval to, to do this, and uh, you know that was on Saturday morning, so it was on my own time essentially. And so, uh, without actually too much advertising, this has started to grow. And the first year we had maybe 160 people on there, or whatever. And uh, so there were four classes, and each class or each webinar would a live webinar. <clears throat> and prior to each webinar depending on the topics, of course, in these four classes, uh, uh, people would get a whole pile of emails sent to them with uh, reference materials, with uh, suggested reading uh, materials, with uh, this, that, or another, and and also supplemented them with, uh, I had also a whole library of, uh, of PowerPoint presentations. So I would also enhance that by sending them a PDF file with a presentation about this or that or whatever. So each class had a Certain set of topics that we were covering, yeah, and uh, and and that has turned into a, a, quite a success uh, in that every year it has grown, and in, in so far in uh, in twenty twenty was the first time that there were so many people uh, in the class that, uh, and it was always an early in the spring, late January, early February. We don't teach courses in June or July. We never do. And the reason is, is that there is so much information about beekeeping management that you will then not be able to apply as a student until the following year. Right. Well, most of the people would forget about this. So we felt there was no way of uh, any, uh, there was no purpose for offering a course in the summertime or in the fall, for that matter, only in the early part of spring, so that what they learn, they could apply promptly. So we... Uh, it has grown since that time. I mean, the, the uh, in in twenty twenty, and in twenty twenty one, and now this time again, uh, the interest was so high that uh, I had to offer the course a second time. And so uh, this year, for example, I mean, uh, my contact list for the first course that just finished last week of class number four, if the webinar number four. I mean, I had an, a distribution list of, what, 1,030 people on there. Wow. And, and, and therefore, we have now 
offered it a second time, and it is, that's why later today I have to do this. Uh, it's not live. It is going to be a pre-recorded thing. But Correct. All the other information has to be sent to them. Yeah. Uh, and and right now the list is maybe about 150, somewhere between 150 and 100, 200 people. So... Uh, and, and and most of them are in British Columbia, but also quite a few. I mean, I have a whole contingent of beekeepers in Newfoundland, for heavens, you know, while we are still slurping the morning coffee. I mean, they are just about ready for the cocktail hour. I mean, it's it's and this year earlier, I mean, there was one person from Norway, and then what I mentioned earlier, Senegal, uh, four people in Kenya. Uh, it was crazy uh, how that word spreads. Um, but I think that that is really the, the, the fuel behind this is uh, the gratification that I get out of the fact that uh, 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 that I try to convey to aspiring beekeepers that they should have an, 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 an approach to beekeeping that is not linear, that is just simply, oh, you put in some chemical and you do this and then whatever. At the end of the season, you take the honey out and all this kind of very calendar-based, uh, uh, poorly managed way of going about it. You have to really get into the bees in order to be a good beekeeper yeah. and to be a good horticulturalist or a, 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 a gardener, essentially, so that you have a truly holistic approach from the environment in which the bees operate and feel how they how they function in that environment. And that's, just, I think, my aim. And uh, um, I think that that is the reason why the course has become so wildly popular. Um, yeah, there are certain guests um, that people have asked me, like, how do you do three hours? Like, it, uh, like that's a really long time for people to listen or something like that. But then oh. you get certain guests on, like yourself, um, like Brian Minter, and three hours is like episode one, where I can feel that we have scratched the surface of all of your years of experience. Uh, we have not been able to dive into all the different types of bees. You've highlighted a few, um, I guess, to you probably more obvious differences between honeybees and bumblebees. Um, but we could dive even deeper into every single genus, um, how they function differently. We could probably spend another hour discussing how they dance and what it was like to cool. learn about that. Uh, we could talk about, um, I know that there's some people who um, use the pollen as like uh, we went to Chilliwack Honey and they have like pollen that you can eat yeah. um, and yeah. there's different benefits to doing that there's different benefits to the wax that bees create um, we can do like so many different conversations um, and I, I recognize that you're a busy person but I'm interested to know have you thought about doing a podcast at all um, where you can go like I agree that the, the live format for questions is, is completely important but have you thought about doing something where you're able to talk um, and break down like this type of bee and let's go through it and then and, and break that down for people. Um, so and then people can re-listen to it and go back through and and tune in again to go back and refresh their memory because it seems like the webinar is fantastic. But I can just see that there's um, I think they're only an hour and a half each time that there's so much information that people won't be able to access, even though you're doing it four times, maybe eight times that you're going to no, no, be. No, no, no. I, 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 no, no. The course is is consists of four sections. I mean, yes. not every 
uh, webinar tonight, webinar number one is about a certain set of topics. Webinar number two, a week from now, is going to be dealing with beekeeping management issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number three, dealing with diseases and pests, and number four, dealing with other things again. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, and the reason that it is spread out is because there's so much information that yeah. otherwise you overwhelm folks and most of it is lost. Okay. Keep in mind that the live webinars. All of it is recorded. So even if people are overwhelmed with the darn thing, and on Saturday mornings, there are a lot of people that say, no, I have to drive Johnny to his ice hockey uh, practice, so I can't do it. No worries, because if by being, by by having signed up, they will have, uh, they will be sent an access code or a link to each of those webinars. So they can sit in the middle of the night staring at me for two and a half hours it's just you know you need some stamina for that one but uh, so and actually we have these these webinars these pre or these recorded seminar uh, webinars will be available to registrants for two or three months and then finally at the end of the contract that we have with the it provider it is cut off but so if by that time people still don't know what they're talking about or have not absorbed any information maybe they should get involved with something totally different okay yeah. so uh it's it's uh, and the reason that it is not going to be uh, downloadable for example is because of uh ministry's policies on copyrights issues and things of that kind okay so uh but that's why it is time limited and not downloadable so that before you know it i can be uh you know shown on youtube or some some darn thing and it's no that's not the way it works so uh, that is the contract that we have with the service provider so next year uh you know we'll do it all over again yeah if i'm still doing what i'm doing so, yeah i just know. see the bent the and perhaps this happens when you're when you're done in this role is that to me i'm guessing that there are so many stories uh, that you've been working on um, a particular hive or that you've had an experience uh, in Uganda or you've had an experience in Alberta or you've had an experience in Nanaimo or that you have these stories that aren't going to train someone on yeah. how to keep bees yeah. but are super interesting to oh, beekeepers well, yes. to be able to tune into yeah. and when the, because with podcasts you can have it on when you're working with your bees or you can have it on when you're driving down the road or you can be doing other things and be learning about a topic because um, when I saw the interactions with this beekeeping group they're super passionate people and to be able to learn or hear stories from yourself on like so one thing i'd like to talk about today is this experience i had in uganda where i dealt with this problem and it's not going to be like this is step one step two step three but it's going to be consumable to people Mm -hmm. where they're like i didn't think of that or a life lesson of what you learned along your journey because there's so much information that I think people can gain from individuals like yourself or Brian Minter, where like, no matter how many webinars you do, you're going to have a story that you didn't get to share because it's not on point with what you're talking about. Fair fair enough. Yeah. 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 It's well, these things are possible. Yeah. If there's any way I can support that, uh, please let me know because I, I get inspired off of individuals like yourself, knowing that you have so much information to share and that you're, you've worked to do this. Like you were the one who went to the government. The government didn't come to you and say, you need to do a webinar so that you, you fit this. It's because you care about these things. It's because you want the best for British Columbians. You want the best for our crop yields. And you've been kind of highlighting the concerns if bees aren't doing well and if we have declines and if they're not succeeding 
succeeding, then our our economies aren't going to succeed. Our our farmers well, aren't going to succeed. Yeah. And so having that understanding, I think, is is so it would come through in every hypothetical episode you would do. Um, when it comes to bees, are we moving in the right direction? Um, I watched the bee movie. I was terrified. Um, are we moving in a better direction since that? Or do you like what are your thoughts on um, British Columbia, Canada, the world? Are we are we getting the drift that we need to do something? Oh, we are doing things all the time. It's a question that some of the things that we do may not be the right thing. But okay. I think that uh, we are going through a transition, uh, not just on bees, but on a lot of other food production systems as well, where more technology is going to be introduced. And I'm thinking here about vertical farming. You must have heard about that as well. And, you know, uh, things like this. I think that what, what, uh, the era of having kind of uh, a, a passive and often poorly informed management system is increasingly no longer sustainable because it takes too much resources and too much loss of these colonies, for example. Then, uh, in other words, we have to beef up the educational niveau and the insight of how to manage honeybee colonies better and more sustainably in an environment where we don't use nothing but chemicals and drugs to uh, to make them perform. You know, it's worth mentioning that in the 1970s, when I first worked for the Ministry of Agriculture uh, as a student, a UBC student, I was working for the ministry at that time as well, only summertime. But, you know, at that time, we had what they called the package operators. And the package operators were commercial beekeepers, not so much here in British Columbia, but they were in the prairie provinces. And it sounds terribly cruel, and most people don't know about this, but uh, when um, uh, the beekeepers would order packages from California every year, packages is basically a box with two pounds of bees, a kilogram of bees, and inside was a little cage in which they had a queen, okay, to protect her against shocks or whatever. And uh, they were then, uh, and there is a little uh, feeding can placed inside as well uh, with sugar syrup so that they could sustain themselves during the, the journey. So they would come out of California on a big truck, and there would be then, you know, several thousand of these packages. And then the beekeeper, and often, sometimes in the snow, there was still a snowbank out there in, in the prairie. Uh, they would be hived. They would be put into the hive, and 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 then uh, they were continuously being fed either sugar syrup as well as pollen pollen patties because the, there were no flowers yet. But these beekeepers had to get these colonies going, 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 going until finally the clovers and the canola and all these things come into bloom in, in what, in June, July and take these fabulous honey crops. I mean, 200, 300 pounds per colony. I mean, enormous. But what did they do with the bees after? They would kill them. Okay. They would gas them because it was costing too much money to winter them for the whole winter. So all the bees that were these colonies that were then used to produce these fabulous honey crops, the beekeepers would then go and kill all their bees. And then they would, after they had killed the bees, they would clean up all the equipment, store it into a warehouse and whatever, and they would go ice fishing or they would go to sit on their lazy bum in uh, in Hawaii for, or California for the winter, and then they would order the packages to come from California again next year. Okay, 
that's the that's the callous way how a beautiful resource was utilized. Uh, if you talk about an an an, an, an grossly uh, inappropriate way of treating an an, an living organism, uh, and 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 you know, with such a disregard and just grant expect these crops to come in and whatever, now that whole system collapsed with the arrival of the Varroa mite, because the Varroa mite was first discovered in the United States. And we had, at the time, uh, I don't want to go into all detail, but there were legal issues and everything else, and no controlled uh, uh, products available, and the border had to be closed for the import of bees from the United States. Okay, so suddenly a lot of these guys that, uh, that, that were dependent on these packages were suddenly out of bees. They had lots of equipment, but no bees. Yeah. And that highlighted the vulnerability and the total bizarre system that had been developed simply because it made some financial sense. But from, an, uh, it was the, uh, I would think, the most extraordinarily disrespectful manner in which we were treating unbeautiful livestock by killing them all off after they were producing our uh, our honey crops. It makes me think of, I just interviewed uh, Lee Harding, who's a biologist who's focused on wolf culling. Mm-hmm. And um, we talk about how we currently just renewed a system in BC where um, we have people get in helicopters, um, grab out a gun and just start shooting them um, from the sky. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there may be a need for conservation. I understand that uh, wolf populations could get out of hand. I recognize all of that. There just has to be a better way. There has to be a way where we're respecting the animals, where we're perhaps utilizing their fur, we're giving that appreciation for for their their sacrifice. Uh, just, yeah. just it's very arrogant of us to approach things in these ways and think that there won't be long-term consequences. We don't know what those consequences are today. Right now, people like to pretend that there won't be consequences to shooting wolves from helicopters. But I have to, again, I think that the bill is going to come due. And just like it did with, it sounds like, the honeybees, this is not sustainable. Uh, it's not what we want to be remembered for. It's not how, it's not. It's definitely not the way forward. And it's just so unfortunate that we seem to learn these things only when we have to pay the price. It mm-hmm. seems like mm-hmm. it, it takes those consequences for us to wake up and go, wait, we were doing that? that's that's crazy that we were doing that and it's so unfortunate that now with movies coming out saying like we need to protect the bees there's these problems that we go oh well well how are we treating them that it's only then that we become self-aware of what we're doing exactly exactly Uh, fortunately that that practice is no longer here of course i mean People certainly don't do it now anymore because they don't have a resource to, to get these kind of replacement packages. So nobody does the gassing anymore. But they were just gassing bees off, perfectly healthy bees, you know, and entire colonies just wiped out. Um, and they would bring in 250,000, 300,000 packages every spring. I appreciate you being willing to take the time. I think that there's so much more to get out of this conversation because you know so much. We we are so lucky to have you as our provincial apiculturist. Um, I have learned so much through this conversation. Um, Can you please tell people how they can connect with your webinar? Oh, uh, well, the best thing is simply to visit uh, the government website. And the government website is the easiest way to find about bees because the government website is a big one. Uh, And don't get lost because you will get lost. All that you do is you Google BC apiculture. 
and that will bring you to our page at some point. And then you scroll down and it says something about um, uh, courses or something. I, I can't remember. I better visit it myself. But it, it, it's fairly straightforward. And then the key here is is that because it's so internet-based, people have to send me an email. Yeah. And that email will put them onto our contact list. And then the steps go through to to get onto this 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 thing now i i should mention that uh, the uh, the course is uh, is uh, is basically an annual affair because with so so much interest you can hardly afford as an organization to say oh we're not going to do it anymore yeah. but uh, and it costs so little money for having such an it contract for a few months yeah. and reaching out for so many Hundreds and hundreds of people. That is just wonderful. So Awesome. Well, yeah. I highly recommend people go check it out just to learn more, educate themselves. Um, yeah. You are more than welcome to come back on at any time. We have so much more to talk about. I have learned so much. So if you're ever in the area or if you're ever coming through, I'd love to record another one of these because I think it's important that we highlight individuals like yourself and uh, take the opportunity to learn. So thank you so much, Paul. You're most welcome. It was fun. 